Steve and I get Cat Stacks Fever on Episode 4 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to Episode 4 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey folks. In this episode, we're going to discuss our first vintage deck tech, Cat Stacks. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at ManyInsanePlays or email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com. Steve, we're here to talk about cat stacks. Sweet. <laughs> so, what do you think about this deck? What's your first impression when you hear that name? Well, I had no idea what this deck was. Um, where did you first hear about this? Honestly, I first heard about it from some of our teammates on our boards. I saw a reference to it. I simply saw the phrase cat stacks, and I thought... I heard that. I heard that it was doing really well in tournaments, and so I think I put a post on our boards. Right. Hey, has anyone heard of this deck? What is this? Well, I certainly had it, and so I had to take a look. This well, deck, there were no deck lists posted. Th- well, and we had to do some searching. If you go on Morphling.d, you're not going to see a lot of examples of this deck from recent tournament reports, at least. People were saying on the Manadrain, that the you know the vintage. For those of you out there who aren't familiar with it, the Manadrain.com is the main vintage website. That this deck was doing really well, and yet there were no deck lists reported because. I guess Nick Detweiler, who runs the NYSE tournaments, doesn't report his tournament results on the Mandarin. What do you think of that? Well, I think that in this day and age, the information sharing is probably pretty important, and he should be. But it's up to him, isn't it? I think that's lame. Yeah. Well, for those people who don't know, talk about what NYSE is. Well, I guess it's his his team name is the New York stack exchange. (laughs) So up in in New York, there are a lot of workshop players up there, and they like to play... Stacks formerly, but maybe workshop yeah. aggro decks too. Well, it's just be their team name at this point. I yeah. don't think they're well, wedded to the workshop archetype. I, but there's certainly think, a lot. I don't of... even think his team came up with this particular deck. Oh, really? Yeah. In any any event, they run those tournaments. They run those there. tournaments, and they don't report the deck lists on the Mandarin. So you have to be like a friend on Facebook to get this deck. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, but when we heard about it, you know, we began our investigation, right. and I think we were really impressed by what we saw. In addition to that, New York tournament performance though there is at least one example like one good example of the deck on morphling.d as well so we'll and talk about morphling.d, that Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you asked steve <laughs> so for those of you who might be interested in vintage technology morphling.d which we call it that but it's just the web <laughs> the website is morphling.de and deutschland that's right they are a repository for very current and up-to-date top eight performances and for vintage and legacy Across the world, there's lots of European tournaments represented there, but a handful in the States, too. And they also have some good statistics on cards that are played in, in top eights well, and whatnot. Not just current data. I mean, they have basically tournament top eights reported since, like, 2001 or 2002. It's a very good resource. It's an archive. Yeah. And so if you want to, if you're curious about what's performing well in Vintage Everyone this week. Everyone goes to this, this German website. Yeah, just go to morphling.de. And it's in English in case any of you are afraid yes, of that, so no worries. <laughs> but it's a very good site, and we reference it all the time. And you probably hear us reference it almost every week on the podcast. So Cat Stacks, what the heck is Cat Stacks? Well, first things first, this deck 
the titular card is from... <laughs> you say titular? I did say titular. <laughs> I like that word. Good the, word choice. Is Slash Panther from New Phyrexia. And for anyone who's not familiar from... And I, and I was not. ...draft, perhaps, Slash Panther is one of these new Phyrexian hybrid cards. So it costs one Phyrexian red and four colorless mana. It's Artifact Creature Cat, hence the title. It's a 4-2 creature with haste. So it fits very well into the the oeuvre of workshop creatures. <laughs> Look at you today. I know. I did that just for you. So <laughs> the the forecasting cost plus the Phyrexian means you can put it out with a workshop and a mox and two additional life. So it falls under the ancient tomb kind of category also and costing you life. But the 4-2 haste body is right in line with the sort of creatures that workshop So really it's play. a forecasting cost 4-2 haster. Right. And... The rest of the title of the deck is, as far as I know, just a play on the the phrase Cat Scratch Fever. And Really? It's not just simple... Well, origin. the original deck list that I saw was actually titled Cat Stacks Fever. Okay. Even though it did not have Smokestack in it, but it's a, it's a little bit of a reach. So, it, it's not a great title. <laughs> but when you say it, people know you're playing a deck that has Slash Panther, at least. And they know that you're probably playing a Workshop deck. Yeah, exactly. So anyway... So this card, I was, honestly, I don't know how I missed this card in my... What is this, Mirrodin Besieged? No, this is New Phyrexia. New Phyrexia. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know how I missed this card. Um, I don't even think I covered this card in my set review. Well, my set li- review is pretty comprehensive. It's a little innocuous because you look at the casting cost and it looks an awful lot like five, and right. so there are so many other good, well, cheaper cards in this set. The way I evaluate the, the new cards is I, I I would look at this card as a forecasting cost card. And I you think should. I, I think I dismissed it as inferior to Juggernaut because... Mm-hmm. It's forecasting cost, just like Juggernaut. Mm-hmm. It takes the same amount of turns to win. By itself. By itself, right. five turns, just like Juggernaut. But it requires you to pay two life, so why would you play this over Juggernaut was my thinking. Yeah. I may have actually missed the haste part, and <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's actually what it was, if I just overlooked this card because I didn't see that it had haste. Well, and that and is I clearly... Strictly inferior to Juggernaut, then. And that is clearly the only reason the card is is relevant and useful, and that haste is synergistic in more ways than one, as we've discovered in our testing. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, we're talking about a workshop aggro deck here. We've got two lists, really, to compare. And we have our own lists. And we have our own lists that we've worked on. So there, But these two lists that we've got that really fall under the heading of this archetype are actually significantly different. Interesting that you call it an archetype. Well, yeah, I know. That's not the greatest of well, more choices in this case. Are you going to share the lists? Or? Absolutely. So let's read down two lists. Now, Which is the first one? It's my understanding that the one with red is the older list. Yeah. Now, I'm not with, and Ryan Glacken came up with this? The fourth place list from one of the NYSE events okay. that Ryan Glacken played. Now, I'm I'm not going to say that that was absolutely the first one. Well, I, let's I don't know the, the whole history. So this is three Frexian Metamorph, four Goblin Welder, two Gorilla Shaman, four Slash Panther, Black Lotus, four Gollum, that's Lodestone Gollum, one Mana Crypt, one Mox Sapphire, one Mox Jet, one Mox Ruby, one Mox Emerald, one Mox Pearl, one Soul Ring, four Solemn Simulacrum, four Sphere of Resistance, four Tangle Wire, four Thorn of Amethyst, one Trinisphere, two Ancient Tomb, four Mishra's Workshop, six Mountain, one Strip Mine, one Talarian Academy, and four Wasteland. Cyborg, for those of you who are interested, one Phyrexian Metamorph, three Greater Gargadon, four Chalice of the Void, three Jester's Cap, four Pithy Needle. So a fourth p- place finish out in the Northeast is a pretty good showing for a deck like this. Mm-hmm. And the thing that stands out from this deck, first and foremost to me, is the presence of red. Mm-hmm. Now, red-based workshop decks are workshop aggro. Workshop aggro are nothing new in the vintage scene. Right. They've been around We've for got years. A long, which it, historically, the the mono red workshop aggro decks have used sort of fire and ice. 
So it's sort of unusual to not see it here. There's no equipment Although they here. definitely, uh, solemn simulacrum and gorilla shaman are hugely synergistic, so I'm not surprised to see those. Yeah. But I'm sort of fire and ice missing is sort of unusual. What else is? Typical? Hold on, just a second. You said gorilla shaman and sl- I'm sorry, goblin. You meant goblin welding. Yeah, I meant welding goblin. him in and out to get additional right. card advantage. So you have yeah. your yeah, it's it's really incredible. And the, the simulacrum is clearly an, a nod to the fact that this deck has in its land base at least only six sources of red. So the right. simulacrum helps exactly. you smooth out, get access to your six red cards, Good point. and card advantage over time. So you can have like a hand that has like Mishra's Workshop and a Mox and a Wasteland. Right. And red creatures, yep. and reliably, you know, when you play the simulacrum, you can find your mountain. Exactly. And then you play your welder, and then you start welding in the simulacrum, right. and you really generate card advantage. Um, and you can buy back some of the tempo that you might lose with that play. So this card is really, Panther. really a new Phyrexia deck. I mean, it's got eight <laughs> cards between, at least eight cards from new Phyrexia, Slash Panther and Metamorph. Yep, between and the we, main we, side. It should have more, according to... Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, that depends on who you ask. At least this deck is heavily influenced by Mirrod, uh, Scars of Mirrodin Block. Yeah, absolutely it is. It wouldn't be possible without it in this current form, at least. So it just goes to show you, first of all, Vintage is hugely affected by new sets. So anyone who says otherwise, right. it, you know, it really has been doesn't lately. really know what they're talking about. It's no surprise. We knew it going in since Scars was going to be an artifact-based block that it would probably have more than its share even of Vintage playable right. cards just because Vintage centers so heavily around uh, artifacts. artifacts in general. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go too much further on the red list, though, I want to provide the colorless list by comparison. This list we got off Morphling.D from a June 25th tournament in Bloomsburg. Top 8 performance by one John Richards. I'll read this list here, and unfortunately, it's also not in the greatest of sequence. Black Lotus, 4 Chalice of the Void, 3 Juggernaut for Lodestone Golem, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, Mox Emerald, Jet, Pearl, Ruby, Sapphire, 4 Phyrexian Revoker, 4 Precursor Golem, 4 Slash Panther, Soul Ring, 4 Sphere Resistance, 4 Thorn of Amethyst, 1 Trinisphere, and 4 Phyrexian Metamorph. Lands, 4 Ancient Tomb, 2 City of Traders, 4 Mishra's Workshop, Strip Mine, Tolarian Academy, and 4 Wastelands. The sideboard in this case, 3 Duplicate, 3 Jester's Cap, 2 Nile Spellbomb, Two Relic of Progenitus, two Steel Hellkite. Oh, what, I skipped, sorry, three Crucible. What, the what proportion of this deck is Scar's block? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, so the sideboard has... Uh, the Spellbomb and, and the, the Hellkite. Hellkite. So the main deck like has third. Metamorphs, Revokers, Golems, Slash Panthers. Panther. Yeah, Precursors. Wow. It's just, like, almost yeah. the whole creature base aside from Lodestone Golem. <laughs> it's incredible. So and, it's a pretty dramatic difference between these two lists we've got mm-hmm. here. Now, granted... There are many cards different, but the decks are going to play out the same in a lot of different ways. Um, the idea here is you play some early lock pieces. The cheapest cards in the deck are your Chalice and Spheres. You've got, in both cases, you've got eight full copies of the two casting cost Spheres of Resistance and the Thorn of Amethyst. So you're going to be slowing your opponent down on turn one most games. And then you're following it up with slightly more expensive, disruptive creatures. Lodestone Golem, obviously. Revoker, in most cases, Metamorph to copy some of those guys, and then the real thing that separates this deck from maybe Workshop Aggro decks from a year ago is the Slash Panther itself. And I think one of the reasons why this deck has performed so well is that that card is the tipping point, provides so much more speed after you've slowed the game down. Mm-hmm. Now, this colorless deck, this at least this top 8 performance list, also happens to have three Juggernauts in it. 
What do you make of fully three different forecasting cost men? <laughs> well, it's super creature heavy. Um, what does he sacrifice know? to get there? He has he sacrificed tangle wire. tangle wire, which is a very interesting choice. That card is so powerfully disruptive. You say interesting. <laughs> I say terrible. Incorrect, <laughs> perhaps? Well, I would not play a workshop aggro deck without tangle wire if it was me. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are sacrosanct cards in workshop aggro, and I think the two leading ones, at least the unrestricted ones, are chalice and tangle wire. Um, Lodestone's on that list, of course. But you're talking non-creatures. Right, non-creatures. Okay, yeah. Well, obviously, if you talk about creatures, Lodestone's on that list as well. Lodestone no one is would... also not a creature. <laughs> <laughs> no one in their right mind would play without him. But it is very surprising to see this well, deck perform so well even without Tanglewire. I'm wondering if that's true. H- hasn't there been a deck list that didn't have Golem? Well, because it's so pervasive. Like in a heavy, heavy workshop metagame, Lodestone Golem uses it, loses a lot of its edge. I haven't seen it, if it's true. I'm not saying it's not possible. Right. You could build a workshop-based control deck, for instance, that eschewed almost all of the creatures in, for, in favor right. of bigger things like Karn and Trike, maybe. And I, those decks would probably still use Tanglewire. Probably Tangle would. Tanglewire is just such a Probably beast. would. It, well, it's, Tanglewire is an incredibly unique card. I mean, something that just immediately impacts the board right. in such a profound way. It's such a hyper-efficient level. Right. It's an incredible tempo card. It's it's really unbelievable what it does. <laughs> And as such, it, it, it's the, it's also the thing that buys you back tempo in games where you've perhaps lost you're, it a little behind, bit. Yeah. It's if you, for what well for one thing, workshop prison decks. I say prison, but workshop disruptive mana denial decks have big problems some games when they're on the draw. Simply, you fan open right. a hand that has a, a sphere of resistance and a chalice and, and a trina sphere and a lodestone in play. Right, but if they play out their moxen, you've just lost so much time that you need to buy back, and Trinisphere is the somewhat unique card in these kind of decks that buy you back that time. You said, you mean Tanglewire. Tanglewire, thank you. I'm sorry, you're right. Tanglewire is what I meant. Yeah, so, so your opponent goes land mox, go. Right. And you go sphere of resistance. Right. And they go land, go. And you go Tanglewire. You've really just bought every, you mean, they're yeah. opposed. You just leveled the playing it. field. <laughs> they can't counter it, because then next turn, you untap, you tap your, uh, your sphere and your tangle wire in one of your lands, and, and you your mox a, maybe, and you have a shop, and you play another land and drop got, a lodestone golem or whatever. Five mana, you can play a lodestone through your sphere on that turn, and they're tapped down with the sphere. That's yeah. that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Scenarios like that where you buy back that tempo. I'm very surprised to see a high performing workshop deck without it. So, these two lists, very similar and yet very different. Let's talk about. Well, what is the important feature that's common between these two decks? The, the Panther is the title card and the, why we're, the reason mm-hmm. we're focusing on it. They all have the spheres. They all have the lodestones. In one case, in the red deck, we've got Gorilla Shaman, for example. Well, has Greater Gargadon and, and Welder and Shaman yeah. are the three red cards he uses. Right. Um, obviously, Psalm Simulacrum is worthless unless you play red. I mean, yeah, not worthless, but pretty wouldn't play terrible. Yeah, right. Pretty weak. So the red deck has... Gorilla Shaman, in order to be disruptive, he doesn't play main deck Chalice of the Void. I think that's oh, a pretty wow. well. That's a pretty clear choice there. Well, is that right. He's relying on Chal- Shaman. Chalice at one loses a lot of its value when you have six one casting cost creatures you can top deck. Well, there you go. That's one of the key plays for the mono right. brown version. Is it right. has basically no functional one casting cost cards. A right. couple of mana Soul sources. And mana vault, maybe. But Chalice at one is such a powerful play. Why is that such a powerful play? Well, in modern environment. Well. I mean, if you just look at Vintage generally, mm-hmm. you know, you in the entire Magic card pool, Vintage players will select the most efficient spells. And 
disproportionately, one, zero, one, and two casting cost spells are the cards that are the most efficient mm-hmm. um, for the same effects. So, you know, people are going to play as many pl- one casting cost spells as they can that are good. And it just so happens that lots of the restricted list is one casting cost. And most of this sort of like developmental cards are one casting cost. Mm-hmm. Like Preordain, Sensei's Divining Top, Half the Time Belt Combo. Um, Mystic Remora. Myst- yeah, Mystic Remora, Brainstorm, Preordain, mm-hmm. Ponder, etc. And, and, and almost all of the top deck tutors are one casting cost. And then a lot of the sort of secondary acceleration, like Soul Ring, Mana Vault, Dark Ritual, mm-hmm. sit at that casting cost. So if you can get a Chalice at 0 and 1, you basically cut out, what would you say, like a third to 40% of an opponent's deck, if not more, in general? I would I would wager, well, it depends on the matchup, of course, but if you're talking about a blue deck, I yeah. would wager it's even more than that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a significant structural... You've right. cut two legs out of their three-legged stool almost, and they're reliant on... They have to basically already have, and the mana to play, one of their three-casting-cost bombs, Tinker or Yawgmoth's Will, or Jace, right. basically, or Tezzeret. Even though Chalice loses a lot of its luster when you can't cast it at one, or cast it at one, you know, as frequently as you would otherwise, mm-hmm. I still question him not running Chalice because... Chalice of the Void and Lodestone Golem, that's like the, one of the best turn one plays you can play, right? I mean, yeah. ch- on the play, Workshop Mox, Golem, Chalice, go. I mean, that's, right. that's about as good as it gets. It's a very structural choice for the construction of this deck, and, and I'm with you. I might have find a way, found a way I mean, to work that in there. Even the sort of five casting cost stacks decks from, like, Roland Chang's championship winning deck list. Five casting cost? Sorry, five, five color. color. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> ran... Three chalices main, and that's and a deck. that deck had ancestral vamp, vamp and welders, welders and, and multiple. So it was cutting off maybe as much as eight or ten cards in its own deck. In right, some it's cases. not like this guy is is. I mean, you cut yourself off when you from playing your moxin, right? And it's not this deterrent for playing chalice and chalice at zero. Well, so what you're hitting on there is something of a fundamental theory of a mana denial strategy, at least in right. modern workshop decks. Where if you're able to break even with something, assuming you have other effects in your deck in play or, or happening, then you're getting a benefit. Right. You're, you gladly sacrifice your own ability to play Moxon if your opponent can't. It's interesting. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned with Tangle Wire is that it helps you recover when your opponent has somewhat explosive draw. Mm-hmm. Tangle Wire has a lot of functions in Vintage. It taps down uh, Tinker targets. It taps. It prevents that opponent from getting that. You know. They're like one man away from being able to play something, and you deploy the tangle wire, and yep. they're tied up for a while. Forces them to act on their upkeep when they wouldn't right. probably want to. So there are cards that have certainly, like, Chalice is obviously amazing, especially Chalice at zero on the play. Mm-hmm. But there's still function for Chalice at zero on the draw. Mm-hmm. Chiefly among them, I would say, um, if you... Well, the most obvious is it prevents people from going nuts with the Ogmos Will. Mm-hmm. Because a Chalice for Zero will, will prevent them from recurring their Black Lotus, Lotus Petal, or playing Mox in another graveyard, or whatever. Mm-hmm. you know, Or Mox in another hand that they've drawn as they're willing. Mm-hmm. So that's strategically important. But the other thing is that when you sort of develop your board and begin playing more Sphere effects, 
one of the ways that the opponent will try and get around that is by playing the mocks and they draw, they top deck, mm -hmm. and the chalice prevents them from doing that. So even like a turn one or two chalice on the draw is effective at that because people will draw Moxon over the course of the game. So the, the modern mean, blue deck has it, it, you just don't build a modern right. blue deck without at least a dozen ways to draw cards and see more cards exactly or more. So just for example, a very simple scenario: your opponent goes Mox Land Go, right? They played the only Mox that they had in their opening hand, mm -hmm. and you play Sphere Resistance Chalice mm -hmm. at zero. Mm -hmm. It has tremendous value because you know, let's say you go Mishra's Workshop Mox. Uh, chalice at zero, sphere resistance. Mm -hmm. That's fine because they're going to try and get around that sphere by mm -hmm. playing the mocks and they draw, and you're cutting them off of it. Every single mox that they have for the rest of the game. <laughs> and, and players might not feel confident in that, but put yourself in the position of the blue player. If right. you hadn't played that chalice, then on the next turn you might do something simple like preordain. Yes. And seeing a mox in that preordain is going to be very useful to you. You're going to say, right. hey, this helps me address this well, sphere, so I'm excited to draw it and play just it. Just imagine it in simple terms. They play turn two or three Ancestral Recall, mm -hmm. and they draw Mana Crypt and two spells. <laughs> they would really like to play that Mana Crypt. Right. Or if they see a Black Lotus in the Ancestral Recall, even better. Right. You and just prevented them from playing their Jays. Another thing that's important for perhaps aspiring workshop players to understand or to appreciate this, this apparent... Um, lack of uh, balance that we're talking about here is that your deck doesn't draw that many cards. Put very simply, your workshop deck that you're playing is drawing one a card a turn, basically, with a few exceptions. The blue opponent that you're playing is manipulating their, is library, manipulating yeah. their library possibly every turn of the game, mm -hmm. and they're designed to sculpt right. their draws. Which really goes to show you, because they're, of their celerity, the, the way in which they filter through cards so quickly... It will hurt them a lot more than it will hurt you. Exactly. Exactly. You, you, your chances of, of sort of running into your own chalice are much less than theirs. Exactly. And that's what I was getting at. Is it's, that's one of the things you have to keep in mind is when you're hurting both of you, you are hurting them more. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, that, that's the point of sphere resistance is. Right. It's right. symmetrical, but it's not. Same with chalice at zero. So, getting back to the specifics of Cat Now, maybe you don't though. run four chalice, but you, <laughs> you don't have to run some. You could run three and one on the board for combo mm -hmm. decks. I, 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 you know, this is sort of a ridiculous topic because I doubt any of our listeners would, would run less than four chalice. So, <laughs> so I don't know what we're well, talking about. This. But you know what? You, you, you hit on the one example of where I thought I feel it was appropriate because I myself ran three chalice main in a five-color stacks deck right. back when that deck was more competitive. And I think that was the right number at the oh, time. Let me qualify what I said. I don't think anyone would run less than three Chalice main deck, even if they're running red. Okay, I mean, okay. I mean, any of our listeners, aside from... Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so, apologies, Ryan. But, but the, And that's part of the reason why we have our own build of this deck that we, at least what we think is probably a good hybrid of these two oh, lists we've got here. It's yeah. not a hybrid. It's a revamp. A, right, uh, right. A, a reformulation of the idea. Well, Steve and I both played uh, mono mono brown workshop aggro decks in last year's Vintage Championship, and we didn't win. This is the first time I've ever played a workshop deck in the Vintage Champs. <laughs> uh, not the first time for a workshop deck for me, but the first time for a workshop aggro deck, mm -hmm. because I hadn't played since the printing of Lodestone Golem in that particular tournament. So, so, so but so this is a natural extension of that archetype. The the whole the Panther what do you itself. Mean by archetype? Though, what do you mean? 
Well, I know you and I have gone around and around about the definition of that I don't want to get into the theory of this. I just want to, what's a simple, what do you mean? I would call workshop aggro an archetype because it is a broad set, it's a broad set of, of strategic goals. Your goal is to slow your opponent down and kill them quickly with creatures versus a deck like Stacks, which is also in a broad umbrella, right. where the goal is to slow them down and then slowly eliminate all of their resources before killing them with something that's irrelevant. It's, it's, a, it's a true control deck. Yeah, I, I typically distinguish between workshop aggro and workshop control. Sure. There are workshop combo decks. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's there's so many different types of workshop decks. There's five-color stacks, blue-red stacks, you know, Green red stacks, <laughs> green red at workshop aggro, workshop on a red workshop aggro mud, right. and then the mud variants are range from control to aggro. So, it, historically, mud decks, well, it, for the predominantly were, were workshop aggro decks. They had like right. in the last four or five years, they had like a couple of arcbound ravagers mm-hmm. and like maybe some trikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the printing of lodestone golem, that sort of all changed. Well, um, we had consolidation of what the best cards were for the archetype. Right. And the workshop control decks are typically defined by the presence of smokestack, Mm -hmm. which really reveals the focus, the the strategic focus of that particular deck, which is to dominate the board and 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 sort of achieve not simply a soft lock, but a hard lock. Mm -hmm. Although stack stacks have achieved soft locks (laughs) in the past. I mean, it's it's like you you need to wipe out your opponent's entire board. In order to win, right? There there are certain scenarios where you are just racing by the tempo you've gained. Right. But that's part of the problem with the title of this deck. It's more clever than accurate because I would never describe a deck like this as stacks. Even if it played smokestack, I would never describe a deck that featured Slash Panther as a stacks deck because it's clearly trying to do a different thing. I sort of wonder if... Ryan was inclined to fashion a, a mono-red list because of Slash Panther if he thought, oh, well, sometimes he'll be able to play this without paying the two, and that's what pushed him towards red. I think that was just um, a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I don't... I think that the... I think experience has shown that you really want to be mono-brown. He's giving up days. far too much... In playing six mountains and four lo- and solemn simulacrum, yeah. he's giving up far too much power and flexibility by by having all these basic mountains in his deck. But I would say he probably probably wanted to play a goblin welder workshop aggro deck. Really, I would give him the benefit of the doubt and say he probably wanted to play goblin welders and slash panthers. Just but see the, a the, better juggernaut. I think, that, I think that goes to the issue of what your role is here. Like, are you the aggro deck or the control deck? Welder is really more of a control card. I mean, it doesn't really help you. It's not a, a beater. It right. doesn't really help you in terms of your aggressive strategy. I mean, just even if it was aggressive in some respect, it takes so many turns for it for, to manifest as an yeah, aggressive card. You would you would just rather have another actual creature there. However, I will point out that the haste on Slash Panther changes that equation. That's a good point. In probably multiple scenarios where your opponent is excited to counterspell a Slash Panther and where an active Goblin Butter would mean you get a lock component back for next turn in, in past decks and yeah. past games. Now, your active Welder means that Slash Panther comes back in and attacks on the same turn. And and, and Welder does have value, like we said, with Psalm Simulacrum, but where is your Sword of Fire nice? <laughs> I think <laughs> I think that that card, they just couldn't find room for it. These decks these days have a very high tension between lock components and active creature threats. Well, 
Sword of Fire and Ice is so fast. <laughs> I mean, it is. It it really like doubles the speed of your kill. It really does have a place in a deck with six one drops too. And it stops Ancient Grudge from functioning on your creatures. At least that's a good point. Well, you, I would not be surprised if you were right and Sword of Fire and Ice had a place in modern workshop aggro decks. Mono red. I'm talking mono red. I would maybe even not. Maybe as yeah. a sideboard card to fight the ancient grudge you're talking about. I don't about. think we should spend much time talking about the mono red version. Let's talk about the brown version. Well, you and I both agree that the brown version is superior. I think in this scenario, the uh, the only thing I'll add is that perhaps up in the New York Stack Exchange, the uh, presence of welders is a bigger deal than we're giving it credit for. Well, let's answer the question: Why is mono brown better? I mean, you said it's so much better, but well. Compared to the red list, he has six mounts. In that same spot, the mono red I'm sorry, the mono brown deck is going to have two more ancient tombs and two to four city of traders for much faster plays. And in addition to that, you're just never gonna get color screwed. Right. And the value of the red cards, I, I think that's the key point, which is that the mono brown version is much more consistent. Mm-hmm. That um, tapping a land for one is Suboptimal if you could tap a land for two mana, <laughs> <laughs> and, let's and, and 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 the reason that matters is because you're you're balancing the benefits of these red creatures against the benefits, you know, the, of the, having the opportunity cost. Having played a spell that costs one more, right? And the opportunity cost is that you, I mean, t- in today's sort of modern vintage, there are so many excellent card options that you don't need sort of goblin welder to recur. The good cards. The good cards, because you have a density. Uh, in fact, it's difficult to figure out what not to run. <laughs> I mean, well, and that's a very good so point. many excellent options. Do you think? Do you think we've passed a certain threshold in playable mono brown cards? I do. I think we passed it. Probably with Scars of Mirrodin. Certainly, with <laughs> New, New Phyrexia. Phyrexia. Yeah. I mean, um, you have. A card that we haven't even talked about yet is Frexing Revoker. That card is... We... I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I could be more happy and excited about a two-casting-cost creature in a workshop aggro deck. That card... It was not designed for this intention, but it fits the bill so well. That card is going to be the card that allows workshops to compete at the Vintage Championships this year. Right. A lot, of people, that a lot of people might not appreciate that. When you look at a list that has Lodestone Golems and maybe Metalworkers, maybe Slash Panthers, all these other creatures, the thing that should stand out to every one of you is how many Revokers that person's playing in their main deck. Right. Because in my opinion, any number other than four is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think I agree. I mean, so... But exp- explain why that is, though. Because some people might say, okay, you're turning off the big cards. You're turning off Time Vault. You're turning off Jace. These turns turning off Tezzeret. These are big deals. Don't get me wrong. But what else is it about that card? So the first thing... It, you know, I, I, I keep thinking about something Brian DeMars said. He said that Revoker is like the Stone Rain dude. Like, he comes in and Stone Rain's your it's, opponent. It's a mono-brown Avalanche Riders. Yes. For half for as much. mana. And the reason is because he immediately turns off a mox. So imagine your opponent has, go, your opponent is on the play, and they go Black Lotus, <laughs> Mox, Land, and you open Workshop Phyrexian Revoker. It's almost what as you, though you're you referring done? to a game that we've played this evening. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Steve, Steve and I played the games earlier tonight. He made that same exact play, and I followed up with, I don't know if it was Workshop or Ancient Tomb, but that's not important. I followed up with Land Revoker. Workshop. 
Land Revoker, I named Black Lotus. He knew I was going to name Black Lotus, yeah. of course. But he had a choice to make. It, I mean, that was that was a doubly incredible scenario. Because if you right. choose to sack your Lotus in response, I get double value out of that exactly. guy. Exactly. I get to name your mocks also. That's yes, incredible. exactly. So, so I, I let you name the Lotus. My plan was to vent for Jace there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, and I shut that whole plan off. Yes. So, But it's just incredible. Revoker is really incredible. Well, it's very similar to our conversation about Tanglewire. I bought back yes. an incredible amount of tempo with that play. Yes. It's, so that's the first sort of aspect of Revoker, which is that he turns off a mox in play immediately. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, he's highly synergistic with Golem. Mm-hmm. He serves so almost the, all the lock components. He serves the function of, of Chalice, which is that... You know, Golem lets all of their mocks in, in Artifact Acceleration into play undisrupted. Mm-hmm. Well, Revoker, you know, so turn one, Lodestone Golem, and your opponent goes, Mox, Mox, Land. Turn two, Revoker. Now, he's basically performed part of the function of Null Rod, mm-hmm. but he's a creature. Mm-hmm. So, and, he, and he's, you're attacking for, for seven a turn, you know, so he's basically doubled your clock. Which is not insignificant. Right. His, his impact on the clock going from five to seven is crucial, too. Right, because your opponent's going to do a couple damage themselves. Right. So, you know... They've, they've done five immediately, the next turn seven and seven. You win the game then yeah. in three turns um, by turn four at that point. So, sorry, turn, That's turn, yeah, four. turn yeah. four. Um But then the second thing is he is tactically and strategically so important. Mm-hmm. Um, hitting Time Vault is huge. Hitting Jace and Tezzeret are even bigger mm-hmm. and potentially bigger. Um, so he really is the... Like, the card that puts... I mean, we said before, you know, we think Jace and Tezzeret are sort of at the top of the vintage paradigm right now. Mm-hmm. And Jace in particular. And obviously Time Vault is everywhere. This guy is the uber answer to all of them. Right. You want four because you want to be hitting everything. Right. I mean, it, I mean, if for example, if you go turn one, Lodestone Golem, you want... Turn two, double revoker is a great follow-up. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you can you can name Mox and then Time Vault right there. There are Jace. lots of cards in a workshop aggro deck that you really don't want to draw two of. I'm not excited by two spheres necessarily. I don't love drawing double lodestone unless right. I have good mana. But double revoker, every time I look at that, I'm like, that is awesome. Because I get to make basically both ends of the play. Yeah. I get to name the Mox. Oh, God. I can name a second how Mox insane, if they've got how two. How insane is this start? <laughs> Same plays. <laughs> Workshop, Mox, Lodestone Golem. Right. Turn two, Workshop, you, 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 Revoke. Your, your opponent goes what? Whatever. But if they go Land Mox. <laughs> yeah, Land Mox. Then they, <laughs> you go Workshop, Revoker on their Mox. Right. Wasteland their land. Play a second Revoker. revoker and then like Jace or Time Vault. Name Jace or Time Vault. Or Probably test, Time Vault. If you know the matchup. Probably Time Vault because that's their the only, most immediately threatening. That's the know. only thing they can possibly do. They're that, buried. That play they buried. is so unbelievably lopsided. It's just incredible. And you get two one bodies to go with it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that's that's it's nine damage next turn. Right. <laughs> They're toast. And then all you gotta do is play a Slash Panther and the game is over. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting back to the Cat Stacks list, I, I believe that the Revoker is a requirement. Neither one of these lists has Revoker, correct? Let's see. No, the the top list. It's the Mono Brown li- list has four Revokers. It does. Revoker is the most important piece of technology for workshop decks. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, people people talk about how... I mean, people annoyingly, you know, sorry, they, in an annoying tone, right. you know, bemoan the presence of Time Vault in Vintage. Well, play some Revoker and uh-huh. see how you feel. And then... You know, it hits Jason Tazaret and all this other stuff, and the Moxon. It's just, it's huge. In fact, when you played Revoker against me tonight, I think you named the wrong card. In you, what case? You named, I think you named 
Oh no, I, I'm mistaken. I was thinking when you, one of the times you played Metamorph, and oh, you right. copied. I copied a, a sphere. No, no, I copied my Revoker, and I named. Oh, you c- I had one in play naming Time Vault already. Yeah, and I played another one. I think naming Jace, perhaps. They, I think you I had, think I had both. Yeah. Any case. Anyways. Yeah. It, it's just a testament to how flexible those guys yeah, are. Yeah, it, it really gives you options. One of the the biggest criticisms, I said, the number one problem with workshops, you know, so after the Vintage Champs last year, <laughs> Chapin wrote an article bashing workshops, and Owen Turtenwald and his, you know, also said workshops suck. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that one of the things Chapin said was that good players don't play workshops. Mm. Well, well, we we played workshops last year because. We thought that we had a real giant leap in the technology. That is, we, we had a good workshop. We had a good workshop list, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about sure. that later. But the main problem with workshops historically, in in presence, is in the present, is that Mishra's workshop prevents you from accessing cards in the vintage card pool. Mishra's workshop inclusion in in any given deck prevents you from basically playing gold cards and it prevents you from playing three and four casting cost spells that aren't that aren't that are not artifacts and um and even two casting cost spells are sort of iffy in depending the, on how their mana requirements yeah i mean even like you can play balance and demonic tutor but i mean it's still iffy i mean when you're dropping spheres it's particularly in an environment where lodestone golem and thorn of amethyst exist mm-hmm. like you're just dumping spheres turn after turn and so it's really difficult even in multicolor workshop decks, to play two casting cost spells because it could cost four or five mana and, right. and without being able to use the workshop to play it. The point is that workshop workshops as an archetype have access to a far smaller part of the vintage card pool than non-workshop decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a consequence, they have a lot less flexibility in design space. Um, of course, the trade-off is that you get to play with spells that no other deck can play with. Yep. That workshops allow you to play with four, three, four, five, and six casting cost artifacts, mm-hmm. and you get to play with artifacts that would otherwise be too symmetrical. Yep. So you trade off a, what would you say, like a giant part of the, the vintage card pie, basically oh. like 50% of the vintage card pie you can't play. Probably more, but, but yes. Then, but then you get to play with like 100 cards that no other deck can play. Um, and so so that's the trade off, and that's why workshops are bad, in people like Brian DeMar's view is because you just you can't really you can't choose lines of play the same way other decks can and you don't have access to cards so you can't metagame as, as effectively right um, this card Fraction Revoker is a skill intensive card you know it's going to require this is one of those areas where like workshops get a lot more skill intensive mm-hmm. you need to know what to name you when you play Revoker you might want to name something on the board you might want to name something you know might be coming mm-hmm. you know oh yeah and if if it's but one of the metamorph continues that trend. It's one of the powerful aspects of that card too. Is if you know a matchup very well, right. you will find yourself in the mid game. Perhaps it's your second revoker, or perhaps it's turn four, maybe where you didn't get one on turn one or two. But you will find yourself more often naming cards that aren't in play, as you understand matchups and understand what the pivotal points are going to be right. in, in a matchup. Right. But at a minimum, it's like Stone Rain your mocks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. Or turn off your Jays. I mean, which either one is great. Incredible. Yeah. And don't forget, too, we're, we're paying two mana for cards that our opponents played at the minimum <laughs> two for in Time Vault, but four or five mana when it comes to a Planeswalker. That's an incredible value. And invested a lot of their resources in Yeah. It. Possibly sacked their Lotus to play in many cases. So 
One thing I want to ask you, though, Steve, when you look at these workshop decks, we've already addressed how they were at this point where you have to make serious sacrifices to build these decks. You're leaving lots of good cards on the cutting room floor. Do you think these decks would be better without Slash Panther? So that's a really important question, and let me turn the question around on you. Okay. What cards in workshop decks don't impact your opponent? Can you think of? Like, what cards don't immediately impact your opponent? Thinking back to the deck we played at Champs last year, and the card that stands out is Juggernaut. Right. That card. Why do we play Juggernaut? Well, I think I he was the question, simply <laughs> the most efficient guy at the time. He synergized with the lock components and with Lodestone Golem in how threatening he was to your opponent's life total, shortening the duration of the game. There, there wasn't a better mana cost to power ratio for a, for a creature that could shorten the game like that at the time. But, but why play a card like that? I mean, why not just play another lock, lock part? Because you have to threaten your opponent's life total in a deck like this. You have to strike a balance of slowing them down with lock components and then threatening their life total to shorten the game to increase the effectiveness of your lock components. I And I think a lot of listeners might just say, playing devil's advocate... Why do you need to do that? Why can't you just play more lock components? You said I'm <laughs> shortening the game. Why not just, you know, why not lengthen the game? If it that wouldn't lengthening the game by burying your opponent in lock parts increase your chances for winning? It doesn't because none of the lock parts that are played in these modern aggro decks have any kind of inev- inevitability. Your opponent is still growing and and increasing their resources, and they have cards and and plays that they can make that will buy back all of that time. But if you're playing four Sphere of Resistance, four Thorn of Amethyst, four mm-hmm. Lodestone Column, four Chalice of the Void, mm-hmm. um, and can't you just play, like, Sculpting Steels and Metamorphs and literally bury them? I mean, in, <laughs> in Wastelands and Crucibles? Well, so hold on. You just named one card, though. Crucible has right. inevitability. Crucible and Smokestack Crucible are two of the... also doesn't immediately impact the game. It doesn't... Not necessarily not true. Crucible... It's not Tangle Wire. It doesn't immediately impact your opponent's board. Crucible more than half of the time does immediately impact your opponent's board by replaying a wasteland that you used on turn one or two. Okay, that's fair. So Crucible and Smokestack are the two critical cards in prison decks, in in workshop control decks of the past, that have that inevitability. They are increasing the reduction of your opponent's resources over time. When was Thorn of Amethyst printed? It came out of Lorwyn, 2007. Yeah. We've seen, we have now... That was a a pivotal turning point. The, the, The... the specific text of that card and its impact on creatures, that is, its non-impact on creatures, was a pivotal turning point in the workshop archetypes. Moving them towards... Moving them toward workshop aggro, yeah. And Lodestone Golem completed that trend. Exactly. Up till that point, up till Thorn was printed and then subsequently Lodestone, workshop Workshop was almost entirely a control archetype. Right. And to your point, they played cards like Crucible and Smokestack in in order to gain resources over time and bury your opponent, as you put it. So... What is it that allows a deck to play Juggernaut today? I mean, because a lot of people criticize us for playing Juggernaut. They said that card was terrible. What allows it is the efficiency of the creatures you've got at your disposal now. Basically, Lodestone Golem. Thorn is part of it, but Lodestone but Golem was... not just as efficient? Well, the point is now you have two Juggernauts. You had Lodestone Golem and Juggernaut. Now you had much more reliable five-power guys you could play to shorten the game. That was a turning what? point also. Why is... Slash Panther better than Juggernaut. Slash Panther is better than Juggernaut because of the they haste both, entirely. Looking, they both cost four. Yep. They both deal the same amount of damage in the same amount of turns. Mm-hmm. So what if Slash Panther has haste? 
<laughs> one of the turning points of in vintage that we've that, that that, I, I know one of the turning points that we've observed and commented on repeatedly is the presence of Jace and Tezzeret in the blue decks. Slash Panther's haste has a very powerful effect on that particular duality. We Slash Panther can kill a Jace. Slash Panther can kill a Jace <laughs> in a way, in exactly a way that no other creature can. It's a surprise, really. exactly, and not even but a surprise. Not, but that's not the thing. I think that the difference is again the tempo. Yeah, and and this is why Juggernaut is good, and if. It was good, I should say. It's, was, it's completely was, obsoleted. Yeah, by Slash it was Panther. useful and playable at least. And this is this is what is difficult to understand is that workshop and th- this tension, this duality between control and aggro, mm-hmm. exists has existed throughout the workshop archetype, and in fact precedes it. Workshop decks, you have to understand, are really the O'Brien school. So if you go read Robert Hahn's famous Schools of Magic, mm-hmm. go read the O'Brien school. And he, the O'Brien School was the Nether Void deck, and the Nether Void deck would it played Juzam Jin, Juggernaut, Mistress Factory, and Nether Voids. What year are we talking about? Ninety six. Okay. Ninety five. Ninety six. Just wanted to set the stage. <laughs> and the way that that O'Brien described his his deck, and the way that Robert Hahn described the school, is in both control and aggro modes. But what it would do was it would either play a quick threat like a Juggernaut or a Juzam Jin and then follow it up with another Void, mm-hmm. or it would play the Nether Void and then eventually get the threat down. But what Juggernaut allowed you to do, and this is why we played it last year, is you could go, turn one, Workshop Mox, Juggernaut, Chalice of the Void. Turn two, Sphere Resistance, Tangle Wire, mm-hmm. Sphere, Sphere, whatever. And you create tempo. That is, for example... Turn one Juggernaut, turn two Sphere Wasteland, rewinds the turn, rewinds the game back to turn one, but you're dealing five damage. You get the advantage. And you keep rewinding the game a turn, every turn, mm-hmm. where your opponent can't catch up. And so the Juggernaut, the Juggernaut's efficiency matters because it allows you to create tempo. It allows you to play a big enough threat that you can create tempo for a sufficient number of turns to win the game. There's a relationship between... Once you've played the Juggernaut, how many turns you can threaten and rebuy tempo with plays right out of your hand? Yes. And there's a, and because your workshop deck does not have card advantage, so to speak, yes. directly, you have there's a there's a ceiling on how many turns in a row you can slow your opponent down, and that ceiling is about three or four or five turns right. real, realistically. Right. So you need exactly. if you're going to play a threat, it has to be a creature that can actually legitimately win the game in that time. Right. Which is why in the red deck, cards like Solemn Simulacrum are deceptively bad because if you play a turn one solemn and get your mountain and you're smoothing yeah. your mana they're there for fixing not you, because you of have not power. threatened your opponent for for several turns you if you I, play a, a a tempo card or a lock piece on the next three turns your opponent still has multiple turns beyond that to survive right. and to and to find answers okay so juggernaut so going shortens back, that window so going back to, and, right juggernaut as a turn one play you can you every turn you can play every turn you play a sphere or a wasteland or whatever you're rewinding the game one turn right tangle wire you're rewinding it even more multiple turns <laughs> um, so it's all about tempo given that slash panther is so tempo fast right because it deals the damage now it can kill it basically is a huge surprise to your opponent it comes and wipes out a jace right. your opponent is tur- just tur- you you play jace right you deploy slash panther wipe it out you know. Well, there's nothing they can do about it, or you, you can attack them. You've hit on a very interesting point there. Part of playing with and against workshops over the last several years, part of it has been 
the mono brown nature meant there were there were fewer surprises. Mm-hmm. The, there was no stack interaction for one. There's no force of wills and whatnot. Yeah. But also. The plays were very predictable. You can think in your head, if my opponent has this card, it impacts this way. If they have yeah. another sphere, it does this. If they play Smokestack, I have a turn to respond and do you my can thing. diagram that Right. Out. Slash Panther changes that math so much. He's so much more impactful than a Juggernaut when the turn he comes into play that even though they both technically kill your opponent in the same amount of turns by themselves, all right. other things being equal, he's actually much more effective because you get it. A, a little bit more damage in sooner, and the impact on Jason right. Tezzeret is, is gravy. You, you, the, well, so what are the differences? The difference, the big difference is that he doesn't have to attack every turn. That is a, that is a that's, technical difference. That's right. He, he can't be blocked by wall. I mean, he, uh, he can he, be blocked. He can be blocked, he can by, be blocked by walls. Can be blocked by walls. Right. Last time a wall uh. saw play in... in uh, well, I take that back. Uh, I think Matt Hazard plays walls in his Belcher deck. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> anyway. The Tinder variety, yeah. Um... But so, but but those that those differences don't matter. Right. What matters here is the fact that he has haste and that he can nail a juggernaut. Sorry, a Jace or a Tezzeret. But even more than that, even more than that, the main difference with Slash Panther is that it gets the damage in now, mm-hmm. and getting the damage in now is better than getting the damage in next turn because. Why? Getting better than getting more damage in next turn. It's an important, <laughs> right. important difference. So Why? Well, because life is such an important resource in Type 1. Force of Will, well, Fetch Lands, let me, Dark let me Confidant. It's actually more damage, period. And here's a good example. And you did this to me tonight. Yeah. I play slash, uh, You play like a Sphere and Chalice right, right. on turn 1. And then turn 2, you play Slash Panther. You play Slash Panther. And then the following turn, you play Phyrexian Metamorph mm-hmm. on Slash Panther swing and done 12. <laughs> so it really is more damage now. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's The math bends towards... Damage now is always superior, even if it's less. It's like a, a Phyrexian Metamorph on a Juggernaut is so much worse than a Phyrexian Metamorph on a Slash Panther. Right. Well, and as I was getting at, life... It's a combination the, the of the two factors. The you played earlier become so much more impactful when you do damage now. Sure, sure. And, and your opponent is so much more constrained in what they're able to do. Their capacity to make plays is far more constrained. And, and this, I think, is, I think, like, the one thing that does sort of concern me is the fact that Slash Panther can trade with a, with a Dark Confidant. Yep. You know? But think about, think about why that's all an advantage, though, is because of the haste. When yeah. you play a Juggernaut and your opponent has Dark Confidant, one of their first thought processes is going to be, oh, good, I can get the next and get an extra card off my dark confidant now and I'll be able to chump block that juggernaut yeah. next turn so they're still getting da- they're still getting value over time if they right. just played that dark confidant they're down on cards right you play your juggernaut they're like all right at least I get to replace the card and then I block I save damage I get a card now look what happens when you play slash panther now they're back to just trading one for one now they right. don't get an extra turn to get that card. No, I, I think it. I think it's good. Yeah. The, so Slash Panther has a much more advantageous impact on simple creature combat, mm-hmm. which, as much as people would like to stereotype that it doesn't happen, right. it does happen, especially since your control decks are playing Bobs and Trigons and whatnot. So Workshop decks in the O'Brien School generally has always had this tension between control and aggro, and what's mm-hmm. really going on is your aggro control, and no card embodies that more than Lodestone Golem, right? Which is the perfect fusion of both. <laughs> Just like Jace the Mind Sculpturing. <laughs> <laughs> embodies seven or eight different things. <laughs> right, it does. I mean, J- Jace's card advantage, it's right. all, um, also manipulating your opponent's library. It really and, is a shame that we don't have a Planeswalker you can cast off workshops yet. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very interesting if that ever happens. So, back to the original question then. 
do you think these decks are better if they didn't have Slash Panther? Um, I think that there are many ways to build Workshop decks. Mm-hmm. But I think nowadays, Lodestone Golem pushes them more in the Workshop aggro camp than ever before. Right. And, and Thorn. And, well, a lot of the Workshop decks, like the Metalworker decks, aren't even running Thorn in some... Right there, they're right. doing Thorn. Yeah. I think the, these decks will push you back towards using Thorn. Oh, yeah. For several reasons. One... When you're playing a tempo deck, Thorn is better. You just want to tempo your opponent out a little bit. Right. You know? Um, whereas, you know, if you're playing, like, a, workshop, a metal worker deck with Steel Hellkites and so on and so forth, you the cost of that tempo card is higher, not because the tempo isn't real, but because there are other cards you really want to include. Like, you know, if you're running Steel Hellkite, you might really want to run a Metal Worker, and you might really mm-hmm. want to run some Worm Coil Engine, and, mm-hmm. you know, what else do those decks play? They're different. Uh, all kinds of big guys. Karns, Duplicants, Trikes. Yeah, those things. Those cards aren't, aren't aren't tempo anymore compared to this stuff. Right, <laughs> right. So I think the, the starting point for last year's design of our Workshop Aggro deck, I was asking a very fundamental question. Given Lodestone Golem's presence... What cards synergize the most with Lodestone Golem? We explained that Chalice of the Void is hugely synergistic mm-hmm. because, the again, the one weakness of Lodestone Golem is artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chalice, you know, shores up that weakness. That's also why we ran Null Rod, because Null Rod shores up the main weakness of Golem. Right. So turn one, Lodestone Golem. Turn two, Null Rod is essentially, in some ways, functionally equal or superior to the Chalice. Right. It's, because you want the, uh, your opponent to get those cards out of their hand and if now, they're going to be useless. And you now you it. have Phyrexian Revoker, which performs some of the function of Null Rod in so, turning off Time Vault and Moxon. So you don't even need to rely as heavily on Null Rod or even run Null Rod at all. Which is just another effect of how we're talking about there's so much overlap now. You have to cut cards. You can't play all the good ones. Yeah. That's to say nothing of Phyrexian Metamorph, too. Right. Which can double right. the function or uh, amplify the function of all these cards. So one of the differences... So when I was designing that deck that we played last year... I looked at every single card that had ever seen play in a workshop deck. Really, mm-hmm. I created a giant list. It was like 100 cards. Right. And I looked at each and every single one of them, and I asked the, the simple question, how good is this card with Lodestone Golem? And the absolute best cards with Lodestone Golem made it into the deck, and the cards, you know, in order. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I looked at Chalice of the Void, super synergistic with Lodestone Golem. Um, Nullrod, super synergistic with Lodestone Golem. Tanglewire, super synergistic with Lodestone Golem. Mm-hmm. You know, the card that, that sort of made it in, at Wasteland, obviously, super synergistic, right. was Juggernaut, because Juggernaut um, improves... Juggernaut, in, in the presence of the deck, allows you to play a consistent tempo game. That is, if you don't draw a Lodestone Golem, but you draw all these fear effects that are just tempo plays... You have nothing to seal the deal, and so your opponent can eventually win. Right. Now, we also ran. I also ran smokestack in that deck. Remember, we had four smokestack, four juggernaut, and four right. golem. So the smokestack was a way that you could seal the deal. Um, but there's really no need for smokestack these days. Right. It's far too slow and doesn't impact the board in the way you want to. It has we, some oh, synergy. It's not a dead play, I but ran, it's just not nearly as. I start, also started with four steel. Uh, what's the copy card? The sculpting. Sculpting steel. steel right. Um, because. That card is again; it's incredibly synergistic with Lodestone Golem. There's probably no better play after a turn one, <laughs> a turn one Lodestone Golem than than Sculpting Steel. Yeah, and Phyrexian Metamorph is just better. Right. So, so, so I think we can ask that same question today, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, 
how do you synergize, maximally synergize with Lowstone Golem? And well, it seems that all these decks, at least the mono brown version, is really an exercise in that same logic that you're talking about. Although the specific example that John Richards has from Bloomberg, he still doesn't play all the cards you mentioned. He's not playing Nullrod, for example. Not none of these decks are. Now he has, he does have the main deck chalices, and. Why do you think these players don't like Nullrod? It's got the full complement of Metamorphs. Why is everyone so critical of Nullrod? I don't know. uh, All I I can say is... In in the past, and I'm talking four, five, six years ago, I did not want to play a Nullrod in my workshop decks because I was playing a five-color control deck and I needed my Moxon to function. These decks, there's been so much acceleration in the efficacy of your spells over time that cutting off your own Moxon... Is, is worth it when you have so many creatures that are so effective, easier to cast, and disruptive. Back in the time when I needed to cast a smokestack and a tangle wire and have a sphere out and be able to pay for my own spells and still cast things like Demonic Tutor, like you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Null Rod was hugely uh, tilted against me. I was, I was hurting myself more. Right. In this day and age, especially with the presence of Lodestone Golem, increasing your opponent's reliance on their own Moxon, and also the presence, the omnipresence of Time Vault, Null Rod is just so much more effective than it was then, and it doesn't hurt you as much. So, to simplify what you said, when you play a five-color workshop deck, yeah. your Moxon are better than your opponent's. Every one of your Moxon's better. Your Mox Ruby is better than their Mox Ruby. Because <laughs> all of them your have mo- applications. Every single one of you're them casting, is better. You're casting Balance, Regrowth. You're playing these uh, broken spells. Yeah. Crop Rotation. Crop Rotation, Demonic Tutor, Ancestor Recall. You've got a one, Tinker, one drop in almost in every color. Chaos. Yeah. It's incredible. Your Moxon are better. Um, Null Rod, but, but when you play Turn 1 Juggernaut, Turn 2 Null Rod, mm. the Null Rod may just be good enough to win the game. Yeah. Now, sometimes it won't, but if your opponent has a, a Moxon Heavy Draw, like they've got their... Um, their Sensei's Divining Top and their, you know, their... <laughs> <laughs> right. Their Grim Monolith, maybe. The, every, you can trace almost every card in this mono-brown list we're looking at here back to Synergy with Lodestone Golem, with the possible yeah. exception of Precursor Golem. Uh, that's an interesting which, which card. Precursor Golem, I think, is arguably... I mean, it sort of fills that, that Juggernaut space. Well, this deck has far more creatures than you or I would put in oh a goodness. Workshop Aggro deck. It has the Precursor Golems in addition to the Juggernauts. He's got 20 creatures? He has a lot. He has he's 19. Not, he's not playing hey, no oh, Nine, He's got 23 creatures. And he's not playing metamorphs. Tangle Wire either. Yeah, this, 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 that's the most I've seen. Heavy weighting toward creatures here, and including the four Revokers. There's no, there's no, basically no missing creatures here from this archetype. So, do you agree that these decks should be playing for Thorn of Amethyst? Yes. yes do you think absolutely. these decks should be playing for Sphere of Resistance? I think there's a chance three, maybe seven of those cards is right, but three or four. Do you think that these cards should be playing Trinisphere? That's a really interesting question. I like Trinisphere a lot. I like it for its its simple power and the nine sphere well, slash thirteen spheres is you just get so many really powerful plays. And this deck can play out from under its own Trinisphere better than any workshop deck can in history really. What are the auto includes? Let's start with the auto include. The cards there's no debate you must run. Uh, I mean, ignore, ignoring sh- ignoring lands for now. Yeah, we'll go back to, we'll go to lands sure. later. Well, Lodestone Golem is the top of the list. It's a poster okay. child for the archetype in this day See, and age. Okay, that's the auto include. That should go in every single version. Yes. What about Chalice of the Void? Not necessarily. See, I think it's an auto include. I think that not running it is just a tremendous mistake. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I, I can't imagine less than 99 decks out of 100 not having 
challenge. Well, three, at least three. I think it has everything to do with the whole rest of the deck. I think there are scenarios okay. where well, you can construct the deck. Let's find consensus. Let's sure. go through the, the different cards. Um, sphere resistance, auto include. Yeah. Thorn of Amethyst, auto include. Yeah. Trinosphere, auto include. Not necessarily. Tangle wire, auto include. Yes. Um, Phyrexian Met- metamorph, auto include. No, not auto. Re- Revoker. Yes. Uh, Tangle wire. Tangle wire. Yes. Yeah, I think that. The only argument against... Okay, first of all, Trinisphere is obviously restricted. And it's one of, like, two, you know, of these these the cards that show up in the workshop decks besides the acceleration right. that are... Um, Debatable. That, no, I said that are restricted. I mean, there's Strip Mine, and Strip Mine and, and Trinisphere are the two cards that are genuinely unique to workshops. Right. Obviously, Strip Mine is used in fish decks that are restricted. And I think Trinisphere is so important because it can lead to blowouts. Like a turn one Trinisphere can just win a game when your opponent has like their mocks and draw or whatever. Right. And so I think it really has to be in there for that reason. The only the reason, o- the only thing I would say against that is just, the only reason I say it's not auto is that I think in, I've tuned enough of these decks to know that you have to cut corners in some cases and cutting the fourth sphere resistance or the Trinisphere sometimes feels right. See, I think that the, the, I would always start with it on so the list. Let's put it that way. The only reason I wouldn't play with a Trinisphere is if I was playing it in like a really heavy workshop metagame. I might put it in the sideboard. Okay, but, maybe. But like, in my view, that's one of those things where you're getting too cute. <laughs> like, you're looking at the the details and missing the big picture. You're missing that the, the blowout factor of Trinisphere is so... Im- I understand. Yeah. You, you got a good point. Tanguire, Chalice, Golem, I think are all auto-include. I actually disagree with you on Thorn. I think that Thorn is obviously the most internally synergistic card, mm-hmm. you know, because you're deploying like Slash Panther and Golem, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the external synergies are not as good as Sphere Resistance. I would not run, I would run max four Sphere Resistance, sphere of resistance which I think is auto include. Okay. And I would never run more Thorns than I had Sphere of Resistance. You'd shave on the Thorn side. Well, I would shave on the Thorn side only because there are, first of all, Thorn is not as good in the workshop mirror. Mm-hmm. Opponent can still play turn one uh, metal worker. It doesn't stop bobs, yeah. which a lot of people are playing. Yeah. It doesn't stop a lot of cute creatures like Trigon, well, Trigon, Welder. Yeah, I mean, you know. So yeah. I, well, I, I think similar to what I think about Trinisphere, we would start with four on the list, right? Yeah. You're going to start with all these spheres on the list, but you yeah. would shave in the Thorn space, and I wouldn't. Yeah. It's. You can go either way on that one. There's metagame considerations. Uh, but I do agree with you on four, Revoker. Absolutely. I think Revoker is, gets the nod over Null Rod. Yeah. Um, but I would. I, I just think that these decks, these tempo decks, should be playing Null Rod. Some number. I think they should, too. I really do. It's such a... It's it's like Trinisphere in its blowout capabilities. Absolutely. In, some, in so many games. And it also helps you show up the absolute worst matchup you have, which is that Turbo Tez deck. Right. That's got to be the worst matchup for these decks, <laughs> Absolutely. right? Absolutely, and Null Rod is the, the linchpin in how you're going to win so many games with it in yeah. that matchup. Re- Revoker also helps you in the mirror because you can name Metalworker. Sure, so sure. So we, the problem uh, we've we've identified, I think, a tension in how you develop these decks now is we've listed two creatures, Metamor- not Metamorph, uh, Revoker and Golem, Golem that are, that are auto-includes. auto-includes, and we've listed four or five lock components. What are the other creatures that you're going to fill out your average or well, your default deck with? Well, Metamorph is so synergistic with Golem, you have to run it. Like, How even many? if you don't run Slash Panther, then you've got to run, like, even if you're playing a control deck, you've got to have, like, two minimum Metamorph. Why is that? Well, first of all, 
Metamorph, like Sculpting Steel, is incredibly synergistic with Golem. Second, it's an anti-tinker spell. So uh, when your opponent has their Blightsteel or whatever, you can pl- or even like Inkwell Leviathan, you can yeah. copy it. It also is good against Trigon Predator. Yeah. It can also copy your opponent's uh, annoying like welders if they have that. It's really good in the mirror in general. In the mirror. I think it just gets so powerful with Slash Panther. With Slash Panther, that card's power just skyrockets. I, should, they be, should we be playing four? I'm not sure. Because list we have now is three. It, in a Slash Panther deck, the Metamorph slot is much more powerful than I gave it credit for. I'll tell you what. When we built our deck last year, I was not very high on Sculpting Steel because I felt that there were too much risk of getting hands where you had all lock components and the only quote-unquote creature you had was Sculpting Steel. I like Sculpting Steel in the Sphere of Resistance, though. I like If that. I have other threats that I am gonna that I know yeah. I have access to, But with then Slash sure. Panther... Well, in a deck now that has... Revoker. Revokers, oh, right. Oh, I see. I think Revoker... The presence is, of Revoker and Golem... In, increases my, my comfortability with yeah. playing these copying guys, because now I yeah. know I'm, I'm past a certain threshold yeah. of having reliable other threats to copy. Maybe we should be playing four. Well, we haven't maybe. even hit on cards like Crucible of Worlds, and then people... I mean, one of the big cards that people... So there's the the old workshop creatures mm-hmm. are Karn, Trike, and Duplicant. Right. <laughs> we the haven't old, even touched on any the of old those. guard. The, the old guard. Well, yes. it's because these young whippersnappers came in <laughs> at half their cost <laughs> and are so effective. Think about Karn. What was Karn good for? He was good for destroying Moxon. Revoker. Well, what's, wow, what's better <laughs> right. than than playing a Karn on turn three or four and blowing up a Mox than playing your Revoker on turn two, giving that same Mox? So much earlier and having a threat on the board, and so much easier to cast. It's just Karn has been outmoded now with Revoker, and at mm-hmm. least in that basic function. Now right. Karn served other purposes yeah. in animating your lock components to attack. He has other uses, right? But Revoker, and he's also he's also good. He's a zero eight against Inkwell, but sure. that's sort of like <laughs> well, if your opponent never gets to Inkwell, then all the right. better. Exactly. <laughs> or if they get their Inkwell and you just decide to copy it with Phyrexian Metamorph, you know what's better, blocking theirs or just having your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which you can block theirs with. And your Juggernaut isn't forced to attack and do it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What an upgrade. Can you believe that? <laughs> so at this point, we've got, a, we've got kind of a hybrid, not hybrid, but a, uh, what's, the, what's the word you used to use for when you took all the possible configurations of a deck and then consolidated them into the one you were going to choose? What did I call that? You did that in multiple articles, I remember. <laughs> you used to talk about Composite. it all the time. Composite. There you go. I think we started with a default list that's a composite of the two decks we've discussed here. Well, our, I think the deck that we, we built is basically just how would you update the deck we played last summer. Right, it's so a natural extension. Our deck is is four Golem, four Chalice, four Thorn, four Sphere of Resistance, one, uh, one Trinisphere, uh, four Revoker, three uh, Metamorph, Metamorph, and three Nullrod, right? Right. Um, but we don't have we had two Crucibles last year. We're not running Crucible, and that's that. I mean, this deck, the deck we have, is probably weak to the mirror. We both agree. What do you think is the role of Crucible in the modern Workshop Aggro deck? I'm going to flip that. You answer the question because that's a good question. <laughs> Coming from the the Workshop Control slash Prison history that I have, that card was a linchpin in, in terms Pivotal. of inevitability. It was I was never more happy than to get that card. It, it it was offense and defense. It protected my mana base since, as you've mentioned, the five color workshop mana base was so weak, and it provided me with that inevitability to slow slowly whittle my opponent down. Now, in this day and age, you don't need the inevitability. Wait, 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 wait slow down there. You said it. How did it? How was it? Defense. 
I can say it's offense because you're playing. It was defense in case I uh, keep in mind I was playing a deck with gemstone mines at the time, so mm-hmm. it got those back in a pinch. But also against opposing wastelands, I was cold right. sometimes with a five color control sure. deck to my opponent's wasteland on a city of brass, for example, or workshop mirror, or the workshop mirror. Of course, I was. I was so Crucible played offense and defense in that deck. Crucible, I think, is historically one of the most important workshop printings of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in terms of its historical importance, because you had Tr- you had Trinisphere, you had Mirrodin, and then you had Trinisphere being printed. Right. And it really wasn't until Crucible was printed that workshops just took off. Right. And it, there were some subtle interactions. Perhaps the most important was the interaction between Smokestack and Crucible. Oh, yeah. That is, and for people who don't know this, before you used to ramp Smokestacks and then sort of shuff them off and then bring them back with Welder. But with the Crucible, you could set the smokestack at one, continue to recur your lands every turn, and mm-hmm. because your deck was all permanents, just about, you would eventually outlast your opponent. So Crucible brought into the workshop archetype, particularly stacks, a new interaction to support smokestack. A new way to shape the game as you played the prison approach, such that the same the first smokestack you played was in play at the end of the game. Yeah, could remain in play the whole right. game. Which when we Just built stacks, it it, right, when we built stacks so many years before, yeah. that would never happen. When we first got together and, and threw together stacks in like 2002, right. that deck was just... It was radically you, different. You drew, you draw seven, draw a bunch of cards, got a huge meditates. board. Meditates. Meditates. Right. And then you just ramp the smoke stacks, let them die, and then play another. Right. Well, and skipped your turn when it had two or three counters on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And w- with the Crucible, that strategy changed entirely. Right. So Crucible today certainly is not as important when you don't have Smokestack around, but it seems to me that Crucible is really important in the Workshop Mirror. It's one of the most important cards. It is. It's really, you could build the deck without it. All the synergies and goals of disruption and tempo we've talked about, none of them depend on Crucible. Right. You could build a deck without it, but in the Workshop Mirror, when your opponent has Crucible and you do not, you will suddenly realize it smooths your mana, meaning you can wasteland your opponent and get the wasteland back. You can play City of Traders more aggressively because you'll have yeah. access to them again later. You can disrupt your opponent. But against the modern blue decks, it's Crucible is not nearly as disruptive as it once was, especially because Gush is now omnipresent. Yeah. And against the Workshop Mirror... There will be games when you won't have time to be disruptive. Right, like you <laughs> if, have to play a threat instead. Like if your a, opponent a plays, golem. if your opponent plays a precursor golem or, or a slash panther, your t- the time you're spending wastelanding them is time that's playing into their tempo strategy. So, do you think our deck is be- is weak to the workshop mirror? I think that there is a more. I think there's a bigger creature workshop build that would destroy this one reliably. Like the and, worm coil engine steel hell kite lists. Well, metal worker lists. I think there's a this. I think there's a middle ground between hyper aggressive slash panther build and a, a full on metal worker list that has multiple six costs in it. I think there's a middle ground. Like what, Karn? I think that precursor golem and Karn, the five casting cost creatures, yeah. are the pivot point in yeah. that. Because if you play a Slash Panther and your opponent plays Precursor Golem, <laughs> you're, you're bound. You, uh, all other things being equal, you're very unhappy. <laughs> so I think that's the, the pivot point. You can build a, a, a slightly bigger, beefier workshop deck that has those five costs in it, and maybe trikes and dupes, some, a couple of each, without going all the way to the Metalworker route, that's going to have an advantage in the workshop mirror. Duplicate's very interesting. Yeah. Well, and so... The thing about Lodestone Golem is it doesn't disrupt your workshop playing opponent at all. 
The thing about Slash Panther is, haste or not, it is only a 4-2 guy, which means it, once it gets blocked, pretty much every creature aside from Metalworker that an opponent is playing is going to kill him. Uh, Karn notwithstanding, but Karn just shrugs him off. So you don't want your Slash Panthers to get blocked in the workshop here, right. unless it's purely profit for that you. That was the, the problem we had. I mean, our deck was designed to own the field, but we lost to Workshop Mirrors. Right. I mean, both of my losses in the Vintage Champs last year were Workshop Mirrors. Every blue deck I played, I destroyed. Right. So And three Workshop decks made top eight. So now we're getting into metagame considerations. How do you feel about this deck? Ours or the ones that it's, that it's extending here, how do you feel about their position in the metagame? Well, I think that the Slash Panther deck that we just described is a beating. It's yeah. really good. I mean, it's probably... I mean, there are a couple things it's weak to, but I think it's strong against things like Ancient Grudge, which are, you know, and strong against things like Trigon Predator, right. which have been typically weaknesses, typical weaknesses for these sorts of decks, yep. particularly the big mana workshop decks. Also, the Hasty Man is strong against Herpel's Recall, simply. <laughs> yeah, and he's strong against Jace, yeah. which is a real a real problem. Um, the mana base is, is, of course, always going to be a, a weakness of a workshop's consistency. I mean... You've got your four workshops, your four ancient tombs, your academy, your wastelands, and your strip mine. But then City of Traders is, you kind of have to run, but it's kind of weak. Mm-hmm. People run Mishra's Factories. Mishra's Factory doesn't really seem very good, in my view, in a deck like this. What do you think? Mishra's Factory is good against Jace, but... I liked Mishra's Factory a lot more when the before Slash Panther and before Revoker, when the creature selection was a little thinner, mm. and he provided... A much he, he provided a smoothing. Yeah. Uh, he, so you, you you spend him, you play him on turn two to cast a spell, then you get to attack for two damage on you turn keep three. You spheres and you can right. attack. So I think it had synergy. But what about it, buried ruin though? Uh, boy, that is a really good question. That's a very very. <laughs> that's a very next level question when you're considering a deck like this, similar to the crucible question. Exactly. Because it's I don't know what matchup question. What matchup ruin, does it help? Well, buried ruin becomes very imp- very powerful with crucible. So if you're you know like, <laughs> but. More specifically, in a deck like this, you're not going to activate a Buried Ruin until multiple, several turns into the game. So the, right. the very question, the very presence of having Buried Ruin in your deck is assuming that it's a turn, it's a, it's a turn three, four, five, six activation in play, which is an inherent contradiction to the deck's goals. So maybe it goes in one of those median, median decks that you described that has like the five casters. Absolutely. Of... The longer you expect the game to go with a workshop deck, the better Buried Ruin is. Maybe maybe Buried Ruin deck goes in the Metalworker decks instead then. Like that's where it's... I think, you, I think it definitely would go... I think you should, you'd be silly to play a Metalworker style deck without it's at least two. You can position your workshop deck in all these different ways. You've got the big mana deck... You've got the super big mana deck with the Forge Master. <laughs> you've got the sort of the one in between with Precursor Golem. Right. And then you've got the hyper aggressive one like this with Melrod. Yeah, and these are all creature based, creature focused workshop decks. But yeah. like you said, there's at least four striations in there <laughs> of when how you're trying to win the game, when you expect to win the game, and how you match up with the other three striations. It's incredible. It really is. In fact, if I'm playing in a workshop environment, this this Cat Stacks approach. Is possibly the weakest one. I would not expect if I'm if I'm playing in a, in a well, seven that's or eight to round. Dissuade me from wanting to play it at work. Did a chance again. If I'm playing in a seven or eight round tournament, I would and I and I expect to reliably face maybe four workshop playing opponents in that tournament. Okay. Maybe in the northeast. So how, how do we tune our list to beat workshops then? <sighs> what do we cut? Maybe we did, we like you cut you start cutting null rods I think because I think it's the thorns. weakest one. Maybe like one null rod, you, one. Thorn. You might shave on thorns, and I I got to say I think you cut the slash panthers. I don't think that really? card is right for the workshop matchup. 
Um, the, the Revoker is still useful because it can shut off Metal Worker is a big one. But also, steel you can Hulkite. just buy Tempo. Oh, Steel Hellkite. You don't, you don't want to get hit by a Steel Hellkite. <laughs> yeah, so in the Metal Worker decks, you want to revoke almost so all Re- of the guys. Revoker's good in every single version of the Workshop. Which is why I think it's a staple. I yeah. think it's the top of the list. And you don't you don't hit shave on Lodestone Golems because you are going to play some non-Workshop opponents, even in a <laughs> heavy yeah. Workshop metagame. So you don't cut those guys. But Slash Panther is, I think, the first card on the chopping what block. This? I don't think that uh, John Richards' deck is weak in the Workshop Mirror. He's got 23 creatures. He probably no. owns the Workshop Mirror. He's, well, he's playing the five casting cost guys that I'm talking about. He has one of them. He no. doesn't have Karn. Well, but he has four Precursor Golems and four Metamorphs. But he also has three Juggernauts. Well, I mean, his got, thing should own the Workshop Mirror, shouldn't I it? I think it would be very well positioned in the Workshop Mirror, yes. It still has a problem, though, with, with six steel, casting cost steel guys. Hawkeye. yeah. This deck, almost any Workshop deck, does not want to see a six casting cost but guy come out of the But he's got four Phyrexian Metamorph. Which will copy the Steel Hellkites. Don't get me wrong. His opponent plays. His opponent plays Steel Hellkite. I copy it. I mean, I have two Steel Hellkites. <laughs> right, but don't you think that Metalworker decks play in its own set of Metamorphs these days? I don't know. I, I don't. I, it, I don't I know. I, d- I doubt it actually because they they sort of ramp up to the big mana ones, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't really. I don't think they ha- they have fewer creatures, right? So they have like two Worm Coil engines, four Steel Hellkites. I don't think they're running four Metamorphs. Well, I think they've got some of their own. Maybe some, but. The very interesting dynamics there. If your opponent has active metal worker in the workshop mirror, the whole game starts to hinge on just how many threats they have. So would you play something like this with Slash Panther at the Vintage Champs? At the Vintage Champs, yes, I would definitely consider it because I don't think that environment is going to be very heavy on workshops. What you would dissuade you from playing something like this? What would if You don't think it's going to be heavy in workshops? Not heavy, no. I Did think you it'll think have last year was heavy? No. I, think, really? no, I played, I, what, six rounds and I faced it twice, workshops twice. So I, don't, I don't consider that to be heavy. There were three in the top eight. That was more I, than any other archetype. Three in the, there were three in the top eight? Yes. You're right. That's a little bit more. But you're talking about the top eight, not the whole sure. tournament. I think that two out of six rounds is the median of what I would expect. I would not be surprised to play two workshop opponents. But here, so I'm you telling have to beat you, at least one of them. You have to beat at least one. I would expect that the median is probably one and a half so about how, workshop opponents you're going to play in the Vintage What chain. would dissuade you from playing Slash Panther deck? Well, my experience last year with our workshop deck in general dissuades me a little bit, but mostly I would say it's simply not the best deck in the environment. I think a blue deck is. Hmm. So I, while this I think... all the blue decks we have, we have together right now. Yeah, but we haven't played all the blue decks necessarily. <laughs> I, I agree. This deck is well positioned against blue decks. And this Don't beats me wrong. Paul's deck. Yeah. And this beats my deck. And yeah. this beats. I mean, I don't know what it leads to. It's pretty good, but we haven't played sideboard games. Yeah. At least not with the, your but deck tonight. This probably this deck probably has the best chance of being Brian's deck. Yeah. So I mean, that's the that's going to be the key test. But I suspect this beats Brian's deck. Yeah. I really do. We haven't tested this against Oath. I think it probably smashes Brian's deck. No. Well, Oath is the key exception. I mean, I Oath is Oath. In, I well, but Oath is a key blue deck that you can play if you want to beat workshops with certain configurations yeah. and if you want to surprise other blue decks too. So yeah, you, you you're really high on the Gush Oath deck. But you this, said in the this past. beats this beats I think all the blue decks. This beats Turbo Tabs. This beats um, I think this Turbo Tabs. The Null Rod. The, sorry, the Null Rod version. Yes. Yeah, the Null Rod version. 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 Yeah. So. And not to mention you have Slash Panther for Tezzeret. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, do you think that this deck is going under the radar enough that it would still be a surprise to the field at the Vintage Champs? It's not certainly actually. not getting a lot of publicity. Not now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to all you uh, aspiring Mana Drain players out there in the Northeast, you might want to 
put the proxy this one up and give it a couple of runs, you might be surprised. I think Steve and I were impressed by how effective it was. Well, Paul called me and he's like, uh, <laughs> I've, I've been messing around with Kevin's deck and <laughs> it's uh, it's owning my deck. So. Yeah. Well, the Slash Panther really is a surprisingly pivotal change in this yeah. archetype. It really does. And the, the, the Metamorph should not be understated either. It has lots of synergy with this whole deck. And we're praising Revoker to the skies. Yeah, so. and I think Revoker is just incredible. Closing thoughts on this deck? It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the real deal. It really is. There's lots of different ways to build it, but it's the real deal. I think workshops are finally at the... I mean, after the Scars of Mirrodin block has completed itself, we're at the place where I think a lot of the criticisms that were leveled last year can still be leveled, but they won't bear themselves out. <laughs> that, you know, what how Owen sort of dismissed workshops as a threat, mm-hmm. you know, and how Patrick dismissed the idea of playing workshops, we're no longer there. I mean, the tools are so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, between cards like Steel Hellkite, um, which is just enormously useful uh, for a variety of purposes. It can even kill an oath. Mm-hmm. And then, similarly... Um, Revoker. Well, yeah, to, to Revoker and, and, and Metamorph and and now Slash Panther, which is an anti-Jace card, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you and I have talked a lot about Jace. If he has a very balancing impact on that one Planeswalker, it could shake up the whole enemy. Steve, that was a fun discussion. We do have to get some, lead- some listener feedback for this week. We've got actually a couple things to cover here, more so than in prior episodes. Even let's start with <laughs> oh, our no. yeah, I know. <laughs> let's start with our last prior question of the week: What M12 cards will see the most play in Vintage? Now we received a few feedback on this, and to my surprise, we got a couple of people saying the fun dial, which <laughs> I, I hope I know I really I hope. can only hope. And then we had some other folks saying buried ruin. Um, what is your thought? What do you think the most played M12 card in Vintage is going to be? Well, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen in the next 20 years. <laughs> but I think over the next six months to a year, I expect Buried Ruin to see the most uh, frequent appearances. Yeah, I, I can't help but agree. We're both really excited to see what the possibilities. And you should have gone Sundial. No, I, no, no, I was no. hoping you joined the bandwagon here. I, I will be. We, very, I will have a. The... <laughs> I will have a very big smile on my face if there's a Fundial deck, and it might even be interesting to see if it works well in a workshop prisonish type deck. But there's no way that you're. I can't disagree with you. There's no way that Buried Ruin isn't going to be the most numerically played card. You know, Grand uh, Abolisher could certainly see play, but it's just difficult to imagine where exactly that's going to show up. Yeah, our discussion last week uncovered that it was not a very not obvious how you're even going to work that card into a deck. But what card will have the most potential, long run? Wow, most potential? But I can't help but think that Buried Ruin has the most potential. (laughs) Because, as we've seen, they keep printing artifacts, the artifacts keep getting more powerful, and even not necessarily more powerful, but more unique artifacts effects that the cards that interact profitably with artifacts just have so many possibilities. Hmm. Now, Fundile has many interactions, don't get me wrong, many mm-hmm. interactions, most of which I think are going to be cute or not profitable. I think the Buried Ruin is going to be the, the long-time all-star Fair. for M12. Fair. 
All right, but we do have some listener feedback. You think it's going to be an all-star? I think it's an all-star. Wow. Yeah. Colorless, get your artifacts back. <laughs> oh, man. Can't go wrong. I'll be on your all-star team. That's right. So we've got listener feedback on some other topics, though. We've got a number of different responses on the notion of creature design and vintage. Oh, we opened we opened a can of worms here. Uh, a very interesting can of worms. Yeah, yeah. you're right. So let's start well, with... Well, our discussion was really interesting. I mean... We uncovered a lot of stuff that we hadn't planned when we were talking about it. Yeah. That, that seems to happen when we have these discussions. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's the best part about this gig. Um, we got a response via email, and he posted on the Mandarin also, from Noah Smith. You want to talk about this uh, idea he's got for a one casting cost guy? Sure. Um, so his proposed creature is Seton's Acolyte. It's a, a one-casting-cost green creature, uh, centaur, druid, shaman. Love that. With, with defender and exalted. <laughs> I love it. I like the exalted. That's a nice touch. Yeah. Um, but the uh, rules text is the most important part. Cards in graveyards lose all abilities and cannot be cast. Zero three. Um, and then he proceeds to say, let me explain why I think this card would be good for vintage. Well, I, I think it's sort of obvious why the card would be well, he's good in vintage. Half as much as Yixla Jailer right there, and right. a more relevant ability. I mean, it has other yeah. applications. So he's, he, it's a card you could main deck. Possibly. Um, and because of Exalted. Right. So, I mean, he's actually sort of tricked the system here. Our discussion last week um, was about, <laughs> you know, how do you... Well, first of all, we were talking about how all these utility creatures seem to cluster around two casting costs. Right. In order to give them two power, right? right? And we were saying, well, we want wizards to print one casting cost creature that has two power. And you had uh, hypothesized, well, what if you give it, like, a big butt? (laughs) Right. Can you you make a playable creature at one casting cost that's not playable because of its power, but has a very low power or zero power? How big would the toughness have to be? And in relation, what kind of ability would make it playable? Well, the point I was making, though, is that, you know, a lot of these utility creatures derive their utility... Because they they can also attack, so the tempo plays. Right. They disrupt your opponent while they generate a tempo. Right. Um, and you flipped it and saying, well, you no, know, you know, what if you had a really big butt? Would it be useful enough? Right. Well, it wouldn't be useful in the tempo sense, but it might be playable anyway. Right. I think that what his, I think what what Noah Noah illustrates is that is really the underlying principle that the power and toughness of a creature with a sufficiently you know useful function doesn't matter. I mean, like, if a creature does what this card does, right. it doesn't really matter. But he's sort of trick, trick. I mean, he's he's uh, evaded the spirit of the discussion by giving ex- exalted, right? Functionally having some power, yeah, and power in in a very useful way when it comes to aggro type decks too. Yeah, exalted is a another variant of haste in a lot of cases. So it's yeah, a, a kind of a hasty one power <laughs> in some some scenarios. But I agree with you. He, the Exalted kind of hedges this example. <laughs> but you hit on a very interesting note, which is I, you're completely right in that the, the grizzly bear body, is it's definitely the median body for a utility creature. It's just the natural gravity point, low casting cost, yet still having effective attacking power. Right. And the utility. Yeah, but, 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 but let's be more specific. By utility, we're saying these creatures disrupt the opponent. Right. They don't disrupt the opponent's creatures or their board. Necessarily, they might, but they mostly disrupt the opponent. Their strategy, yeah. They're, they're, they're very tactical. They're like spheres, but they're not. I mean, they, they prevent right. the opponent from doing particular from kinds of things. spells and whatnot, or at least those yeah. spells having their efficacy. Like, yeah, like meddling mage or affects their graveyard right. or, or kataki. Or you, affects the board or the opponent in some way, yeah. One interesting thing I'd like to get your thoughts on, though, is there are some one-casting cost creatures that are played in vintage. Noble Hierarch. Goblin Welder. Yeah. 
recently Stormscape Apprentice. Shaman. What is it about these one casting cost creatures that allows them to see play? None of them have more than one power. Well, Goblin Welder is all-star, mm-hmm. for perennial all-star, though it's declined somewhat in recent years because of the mono-brown. Right. See our discussion mono-brown. about color in workshop decks. And, but, but Goblin Welder was was actually in blue decks forever. In mm-hmm. the, control slaver. Control slaver. And, and the restriction of thirst certainly hurt its... There was a point a few years back... Am I right in saying that Goblin Welder was the most played creature in Vintage for a while? the one I even suggested could be restricted because it was so uniformly used. Right. It was used in, like, the Belcher deck. It was used in... It was just an incredible effect. I mean, I don't think that there's an easy answer to your question. I think that if some of those fish creatures were one casting cost, they would see play. But they're, they're at two casting costs, so they actually have real power. Right. Well, our teammate JP is is uh, fond of saying that some creatures basically cease to be creatures. That a card like Goblin Welder, the, the, the type creature on that card is irrelevant to its function. It could be an enchantment that tapped or an artifact that tapped. And it's... The fact that it has a one power, zero power, one toughness, twenty toughness has no bearing on its playability in vintage. What do you think about that notion? I, I, I don't agree with that. I think um, a creature is a creature, you know. <laughs> and um, the, you the, are technically correct, <laughs> the best kind of correct. <laughs> I mean, this goes back to what we were saying, you know, that the invitational and other things like that opened up a lot of design space, right, right. and you see more creatures that are clearly not there for combat purposes but other purposes mm-hmm. and just because a creature has other purposes or functions doesn't mean it's not a, any less of a creature i mean ophidian was not there for combat it drew cards mm-hmm. through combat was it the, but it, it wasn't sort of like a combat creature you know? i would say what you've just described there though i think it's just another way of saying what jp would would say which is if you're if you're not you, there you're for saying, combat then you're not a then creature. you're not a creature basically <laughs> what I think that idea has... I think that notion has merit. I think that... Well, to flip it another way, if Goblin Welder... Welder like, like Hypnotic Spectre, though. I mean, it's not... How do you... How do, I, I think it's sort of like a... A, well, creatures, a reductionism to creatures, reduce a card to its to its combat function. Sure, but creatures that deal... Creatures whose spell-like ability is contingent on them dealing their damage is... But, but it obviously are, puts them in the, the damage category. But there are cards that, that deal combat so efficiently that it's almost ridiculous to say that they're combat creatures. I mean, do you think that, like, a Blightsteel Colossus is a combat creature? Now you're getting do you the think, spirit. But, 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 but what I'm, I'm going... I go the other way. I mean... A ball lightning is that a combat creature? Or is that just a burn spell? I think now you're getting the, the what I'm getting no, at. But I think this illustrates my point, which is that to reduce a card to either combat or non-combat, sort of, um, I think that in the I think Hypnotic Spectre is my case in point. Mm-hmm. It it is clearly a utility creature. It it disrupts the opponent directly. Granted, uh, but it also deals damage and has evasion. I think to it is you have to look at the card holistically. I don't think you can reduce it to one or the other and saying it's a two it's a three casting cost two two flyer <laughs> right. or it's a disrupting scepter. It's both. It's pretty clear to me that Hypnotic Spectre is not in the group of creatures that JP would refer to as non creatures. That's I'm talking <laughs> about those creatures that what about Birds of Paradise? That never printed, attack. <laughs> what about Birds of Paradise? I mean, because that card... That's a good example. But that's an alpha. Well, it, it doesn't what seem about, plain vintage, but... What about but, a Prodigal Sorcerer? Is that, what is that card attack? Uh, prodigal Sorcerer crosses the line, too, because it's, it's spell-like ability. It's equal to its ability to attack, basically. The, these creatures in the middle, like Hypnotic Spectre, that's a creature that's contingent on combat. I'm talking about the, the fringes. 
your Goblin Welders and your Blightsteel Colossus, these so, are so, not creatures in so, the way that we understand creatures. That's, and, and Vintage, but, we don't really not, see a though. lot of hand-to-hand creature combat. They're not, at least though. So. I guess what, if, if you could take a, a card like that and take its power and reduce it or increase it to the arbitrary extreme, and it would still function the you, same in the environment? Is, 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 is Tarmogoyf a, 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 a creature that is there for combat, or does it deal five damage a turn? <laughs> I mean, is it literally just you tap it and it well, does five damage to the opponent? I see what you're getting at. That's not the point I'm trying. You could you could reduce every creature's whole function to an alternate mechanic. But this isn't. But yeah, that's exactly. not what that's, I'm getting. But at. that's my point: is that because you can do that, I mean, ultimately, all these mechanics are defined in terms of something else. Sure. Everything in Magic is defi- is well, definable in terms of something but else. But the, the the spirit of what I'm getting at is that not not how could you describe every creature in an alternate way? That's not the point. The point is these creatures, if you. If you took the creature, the type creature off of them, yeah. we would still play them. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Well, there's a category of creatures that are played right. where if you took the creature type off of them and they were an enchantment, yeah. for instance, we, we would still play this. them. I mean, we talked about how, you know, trash for treasure, you know, self-print, and mm-hmm. is the properly costed <laughs> Goblin Welder, which right, shows you right. how insane Absolutely. Goblin Welder um, if Goblin Welder was but, a zero one, we would still play it absolutely just as much. Well, what if what if Gadok Teague was a zero one that cost one? Uh, uh, very good. Okay, so that's a good point. See, this that is that speaks at, to the heart that, of the issue. Yeah, that, this is this, we, right. this, we need to circle back to the main issue here. So, which is the, if Gadok Teague was a one casting cost zero one, would we green. still see play? Yes. Um, probably not. You don't probably think so? Not. In maybe in some sideboards, but but probably ten percent as much as he is today, which is to say, not very much at all. What about even Mind Sensor if it was a zero one? Ah, jeez. See, that's a very tough example because we actually have other cards that are like that. We have enchantments and artifacts that we have, have that We have Xanid Swarm, right? Yeah. I mean, Xanid Swarm is zero one. It's not there for combat. It has evasion to make Xanid sure that it works. Xanid Swarm is a great example of what I'm talking about. They could have printed Xanid Swarm with one power. Would not be broken. It would probably cost one and a one. <laughs> well, no, but no, they could have printed it at one G with a single power. Now, I understand why they didn't, but the point is, it would not see an ounce more play if it had one one power. I wouldn't that's, see. That's what I'm so getting you're at. You're thinking there are a class of cards that... Their power and toughness not. bears not on, on their playability. Now, if you took what Goblin Welder... Sensor? If you took... Hold on, let me finish. If you took Goblin Welder and made it a 4-4 four, four for one red, <laughs> yeah. it would see a little more play. A lot more. That's not the direction yeah. I'm talking about. If you made it a 0-1, it would see the same amount of play. Agreed. Even Mind Sensor is a very interesting example, but that's because these bears... That's why, to your point, they've gravitated to this two-two body. Is that that's you can all, you can also, safely make them at that casting cost, and you're not taking any risks really from a design standpoint. For other I think. formats, for other form, yeah, well, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's what I mean. For other what formats, what about Aether Sworn Cannonist? Uh, um, I'm sorry. What about it? Would it see play if it was a one casting cost zero one? No, <laughs> uh, no. I completely disagree. I don't think it would. I think it would be even better in some respects. In really? some respects, yeah. Really? I do. I think that, that I think that card would be. I mean, if it if it cost one colorless, it would be insane. If it cost one one <laughs> well, white, it would be fine still. Very very many effects would become insane if it cost one colorless. What about true believer? True believer. I mean, just I'm just going through the ones we talked sure. about. Sure. At, at a single white mana for a zero one, you think? So no, I, I don't think that would see play either. I think, I think you've that, illustrated the point that a number of these cards. Um, they have powerful effects mm-hmm. in disrupting the opponent, but they actually see play because they have power as well. Yes, that's what I'm. That that's is what I'm getting at. Is is so you the, think Gadok Teague is the example of? That. I think Gadok Teague. I think well, I think that all the ones you just listed are, are are all demonstrating that point, which is the two power is functional, 
such that Jotun Grunt sees play because of its power. Definitely, that's a very good example. If Jotun Grunt was just a two-two for two, would it see any play? I don't think so. No. So its power is definitely factoring into the equation there. Yeah. Now, can you can you but, shave but, numbers but on these? It's difficult to flip it because I mean, if if Goblin Welder was a two-two mm-hmm. red and one, mm-hmm. I think it would still see a play. Not not as much, but it would see play. Yeah, see oh, play. absolutely, it would still see play. Sli- it, maybe slightly different decks. But it would have seen maybe. less play, not more. I think which less is, play, Which yes. is the, the critical point. Because I think it's in that camp of creatures whose power is, is, is pales in comparison. <laughs> to, but, but obviously, Goblin Welder has a tap ability. You can't attack and use yeah. a tap ability, so clearly. Right. But I think all these grizzly bears... Well, what they, other ones are the key ones? We, we mentioned almost all Kosali of them. Pride Mage. Oh, there we one. go. If, there, if Kosali Pride Mage was cost one green... And was a zero one. Play. A lot more play. Well, it has exalted though. So going off zero. If it's a zero it's one without exalted, dis- well, that's interesting. Uh, without yeah. with no power, the ability to disenchant. What if it was a one one? Because really, what we're talking about how can wizards print powerful vintage creatures in one casting cost? Now, I just want to get. I just want to lay this out there because I think a lot. There's a lot of confusion. Okay. Around vintage creature power level, people. I think, and I think we're we're going to talk about this in a minute. But yeah. Sam Stodd made the point about. Well, let me just let me just get to it right I now. I copied. I got his the text of his his tweet here. He says the problem in vintage, the problem is vintage needs creatures to be of an absurd power level to be playable, especially if they are attacking. And then he gave an example in his next tweet. Vintage only guy. That's the title of the creature. Yeah. One colorless and a red. Ten ten haste. Whenever vintage only guy attacks, the opponent can search their library for a card and put it on top. Now this is obviously an example in the extreme and a little bit absurd. Sure, sure, but it illustrates the principle. In right. fact, I like extreme examples sure. to illustrate. They help to delineate. Yeah, I think that there is an underlying assumption, and maybe Sam subscribes this or not, but I think many players do, that there is a power scale, and that. As you ascend the scale, cards are more likely to see play in vintage and less likely to see play in, say, standard, mm-hmm. and that you inverse, right? That that there is, like, a power creep up through each of the formats right. defined by the size of the card pool. That's completely wrong. That is that there are cards that are amazing in vintage and terrible in standard, and vice versa. Goblin Welder... Trinosphere. Comparing uh, current vintage to current legacy, Goblin Welder is a good example of that. I think that there are numerous examples. Trinosphere is a classic example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chalice of the Void. Chalice of the Void is a classic example. Uh, now, gifts, there are cards that go through the formats, like Jace and Gifts Ungiven, but sure. unevenly through formats. Sure. I mean, we could say that Jace is more powerful in vintage than legacy, although it's quite good in legacy. Right. Um, and... One could even say almost as powerful in 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 vintage as as in standard. I think Gifts Ungiven is a really good, interesting example because it was heavily played in standard. It, I don't know if it's almost it, no play, almost in no play legacy. in legacy. Right there, there, there have been some decks, but it was far from dominant and but far from universal. Amazing and, and then amazing card, in, in vintage. That's a really interesting example. Another great ca- card that was great in vintage and terrible in every other format is Merchant Scroll. Yeah, there you go. Merchant Scroll so, has seen play in High Tide and Legacy uh, over time, but right. it's not—it's certainly not a staple. The likes it's of not, Brainstorm, for example, right. it doesn't go in most of the and blue. Merchant Scroll is better than Brainstorm and Vintage. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, there are cards. I mean, just to be clear, there are cards that are incredible in Vintage and terrible in Standard. Right. And and that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. They think, well, if a card is broken in Vintage, why wouldn't it be insane in Standard? Look no further. And it's not just because. It's not just because of, like, Ancestral Recall exists, and that's why Merchant right. Scroll is great. Or just because Moxon exists, and that's why 
uh, Chalice is good. Right. It's much more contextual than that. Well, look no further than the deck we just spent an hour or more analyzing. And look at uh, your Lodestone Golem. There's oh, a card. God, exactly. Absolutely no play exactly. in Standard. Yet that card is a is a format defining staple in vintage. In, in vintage. Incredible in vintage. And for more reasons than, as you said, more reasons than just the presence of Mishra's Workshop. But predominantly, that's a big one, of course. It makes well, all I those think, cards playable. I think but... a, a better example would be something like um, Metamorph or Revoker, which are very, very good in like in vintage and yeah. probably good in other formats. Yeah, but maybe not as good in other formats. As in are in, in Type Two, Revoker has a place. You okay. have, there are some good targets. You can play him, but nobody's main decking four of them. It's just you don't need to. You don't want to. But you're right. When you look at the Type One, there's just such a difference yeah. in utility. So it's and not that power doesn't scale up in like a linear way. Right. It's not proportionate to formats. And I responded. Or card pool. I responded to Sam. And that's the important point: is that you can design cards that are really good in vintage and terrible in every other format. Right. And that's what people don't get. Right. And that's the key for designers. There are so many creatures that that serve this example that f- fall into this yeah, grouping of utility it. cards and whatnot. That yeah, it's just incredible. It's not. It's not a pure power consideration. So, we've talked about Noah's uh, hypothetical one casting cost well, guy. I think that I think that he he made me rethink something, which is I think last in our last podcast you said, well, what about a zero six dude, right. the one that has a utility? And I was sort of like, well, that really doesn't. Uh, no, I, that I think about. It, I think that first of all, if the disruptive element is strong enough, that could be really good. In fact, that would be a good thing for vintage. Like, if we're concerned about lodestone golem being a problem, why not give us a troll shroud? Zero six that has a utility that right. would see play. Sure, That's... I mean it would prevent you. It couldn't be bounced by Jace, right? You know, and then it would block a lodestone golem all day. Interesting. It, there, it just goes to show you two points. It just goes to show you one that there's so much design space that's still unexplored that is relevant specifically to, to vintage, vintage right. and, and not not too powerful such it as to destroy other formats, destroy or even in influence right <laughs> other formats, yeah. uh, but also that. As we've been debating the the value and merits of the casting costs and power on these creatures, it just goes to serve the the, the point that the utility is what matters. The power yeah. and toughness you have wiggle room on it has an influence, but the I don't a, want to be reductionist about it. I but, want to look holistically. Sure, but, but what, all these things come into into play, and the power is on the all these bears that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and these these green X bears, green white bears. Yeah, it's not the power that is determining their playability. It's influencing it. Because you asked me yeah. the question in the last podcast, what's the thing, the first thing you have to look at when you're choosing a casting cost? Casting cost, And right. we, what we, I think, correctly identified that power is the first thing you have to yes. look at. But in Vintage, it's clearly not the only thing. And the utility is well, a major influence. In Vintage, the casting cost is a, um, like a threshold question. It eliminates a card from playability. <laughs> right. It's almost <laughs> a binary, inclusion yeah. or exclusion exactly. and playability. And then the question, then the analysis follows. Right. Um, another interesting card would be like Elvish Spirit Guide. I mean, how so? Well, let's apply the question we've just been asking. Does it? If it was a zero one, would it see play? Oh well, absolutely. But would it see as much play? It would see about probably ninety eight percent as much play as it see, does now. I don't. I think that Elvish Spirit Guide part of the value in, the, in those, those green X bear decks is being able to accelerate. But then later on, you have utility. Yeah, out of it. and I would if say it it's a, a, I would say it's about two percent of the value. If it was a one one <laughs> zero one, I think it would probably see like sixty percent of the play. If it was a one one, it would probably see like eighty percent. For what casting cost? The irrelevant. The casting cost is irrelevant. The same casting oh, cost. You mean? Well, I'm, yeah. I'm asking. Are you are you 
Are you shrinking the card to make it more castable or, or no? Well, you tell me. Whatever you want to do with it, we can do with well, it. Well, if it was more affordable, I think it would see more play. Yeah. You would be more likely to cast that card on turn two, perhaps, when you didn't need the acceleration in, in a green X beats deck. So I think redu- reduced casting cost and reduced power would definitely increase its play. A two casting cost, one one Elder Spirit Guide would see a little bit more play. Not a lot. We're dealing in small numbers yeah, it's here. It's difficult I think. to evaluate. It's very difficult, but a definite increase in play. Okay. But but the point is that there is yeah there is design space. Yeah, the utility is definitely a very interesting thing to debate. We we do have one more feedback though because because Ethan Ethan Fleischer also responded on Twitter about commenting about our discussion of Azure Mage and he directed this one to you, Steve. He says your dismissal of the hypothetical Azure Mage with a one colorless and one blue activation reminded me of people who dismissed Jace as simply a 2UU brainstorm. Well, I appreciate the feedback, but I would quibble a bit with his characterization. of Right. We um, were going all over the place with that Ezra Mage discussion. I definitely did not. If you if you go back and listen to it, um, the podcast in that segment, I definitely did not dismiss it. I kept saying it would be good, and you yeah. kept saying, but it would be blah, 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 blah. And I said, it would still be good. <laughs> My point is, it would be good. But I don't think it would be broken. So, again, what we were saying is that the Azure Mage activation is just, I thought, too expensive. Right. It, it two and two blue. And, I, and we were debating where it could be, where, where could it fit? Like, could it be a one blue activation or a one, or a two blue activation? Right. Like, could it be a three or a two mana activation? And I was saying that I was, I think it should be a three mana activation, but they should have at least considered, you know, we, we I wanted to explore with you. you right. Know, what, what would it be, how, how good would it be if the activation were just two mana? Right. And, and, and you said it would the, the, be far too good. You said you no, draw, you draw I, a card I was on turn two, about type card two, turn, though. Right, but you said in type two, I'll draw a card on turn two, a card right. on turn three. I, I uh, misspoke at that time, but I did. I do stand by what I said, though, is that drawing cards on turns, starting on turn three, would happen a lot if that card had a two activation. Okay, so let's let's talk about this, because first of all, I didn't dismiss it. I was thinking, no. I think it would be card be very good. Let's assume that the card was printed the way I suggested. So it costs blue and a colorless, and then the activation is a blue and a colorless draw card. Right. Now, the current activation is not draw a card only at a sorcery speed, right? It's, no, it's any, it's at it's any time. Instant. Okay, how good would that card be? Let's just, your view. And what format are we talking about? Let's talk about vintage. Okay, well, because that, that's an important distinction. Sure, in vintage. In vintage, that card... That card would be very good. It would straight up replace Bob in multiple decks that currently really? play Bob. See, that's the first question in my view is, is it better than Bob? Being blue gives it a big leg up. Agreed. If it had the same body, we're talking about a 2-1 guy, sure. right? It would straight up replace Bob in many cases, probably most cases. I, I disagree. I would say more than half, I would say. I, I disagree. Okay. Here's my, here's my view. The biggest drawback on Bob... Is that it costs mana? <laughs> I mean, and black well, mana at that. It, especially relative to cards like Gush, which draw two cards for no mana cost and right. allow you to do other things with that mana. Right. Being forced to expend two mana each turn to draw a card mm-hmm. is simply unacceptable. Like when I pay two mana, I expect to draw cards on multiple turns without having any further mana expenditure. Now, the fact that it, I can play at an instant speed is good. Like if it was a sorcery activation, I would say that card is. Out the window. Yeah, out the window. <laughs> but, so, you play, in the best case scenario, Mox Land, or close, to, let's say the best usual case scenario, yeah, Mox the, Land the Dude. Scenario. Mox Land Dude. Yeah. Turn two, 
you know, pass, EOT, draw card. Land go, sure. Yeah, draw card. And then, same thing, EOT, draw card. That's a very good card. Is it broken? You don't. You like Bob more than that scenario, though. Absolutely, I like okay. Bob more in that scenario. Because I don't... The life... You're trading the life, so you don't have to pay the mana. Right. I yeah. think Bob is better. But, do you, I mean, so, in my view, Bob is a better card than that. So... That's the first level. I'm okay. not dismissing. I'm saying Bob is a better card. Now, that doesn't mean Bob is universally better. That card can do... Once you get to turn three or four, you can start drawing two cards on your opponent's end step. Right. And that is where that card really kicks in. And it has powerful synergy with Mana Drain also. Yeah. So that, Bob is not strictly superior to that card. That card isn't strictly inferior to Bob. But I right. think Bob is not necessarily, you know, a worse card. Now, the life loss accumulates and there are things that you can play there are many with factors. Azure Mage that you would you know, you can play Ingot Chewers. You can play Gush with Azure Mage, which Absolutely. is not advisable with Bob. Right. <laughs> right. But I think um I think the question though is would the card be broken at that casting cost in vintage? And the answer is clearly no. But would it be good? Yes. That which I was which was what I was saying. The question is the real question is would it be great? And I think the it's unclear, but it's possible. It's a risk. Hold on, though. I think that part of what Ethan's getting at, though, is he might be responding a bit to our characterizations with that hypothetical card in standard also. I, I was making a pretty clear point that that card is far too good in, for standard. Well, I have no two, knowledge two man standard, so I that, And that's what I was trying yeah. to support is that... But I don't think that card would be... I think that card would be played in Legacy, but I don't think it would be too good either in Legacy. And Legacy is a very different threshold for blue creatures, too. But I think it would see play. I think it would be good. Oh, yeah. Like, no, it would. counterbalance that could be amazing. Yeah. I, I don't feel equipped to evaluate the whole scenario in Legacy. But the, I agree. I'm not saying they should... I was never saying they should have... At least I hope that they should have had it at a blue one activation. I think that should be a three activation. That's, I think that's a fair median. Still really powerful in type two. They could have printed it. Maybe they'd have to make it rare. How can that be? I mean, doesn't compulsive research exist? I mean, like... <laughs> We're just rehashing... <laughs> I'm just wondering. I just want... I mean, these cards existed in type two, like Thirst for Knowledge and Compulsive Research. For And when you played them, they went away. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, guy but, doesn't go away but, after but you draw the first card. You can't card. even play it that quickly. I mean, I just, I just don't understand how paying five mana yep. to draw a card and eight mana to, to draw two cards is too good in standard. How is that too good? Doesn't 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 cruel all the minimum draw three cards and do a whole bunch of other stuff at the same right, time? Right. Some sweet serious. I mean, dead serious. How is that well, too good? How is a three casting? This cost? is a different environment than the cruel ultimatum environment. That card is not legal in standard. Keep okay. In mind. It is important. Right, to keep and it costs the, the like three different colors too. So uh, it's important to keep the rotations in mind. That was a very different environment than what we're currently faced with. But I'm just wondering, as a general matter, how can an eight casting cost, eight spending eight mana to draw two card to draw two cards be mm -hmm. too good? Because of when you spend that eight mana, spending it on that starting on fun. turns two and three in standard, that's the best time to spend your mana is early. <laughs> you get into the late game, and so on turn five, you've got. Is that going to make a deck too good? I don't. I don't know if it'll make a deck too good. I really don't. But I'm telling I mean, you that with that's, Jace, that's you get why. to draw. You get to draw. You know, Jace was a mistake. Can we agree? But, but the, I think I, I agree that Jace is a mistake. But Jace is a mistake not because it says draw a card, because it has the brainstorm effect. And because brainstorm it costs four, and because yeah. the draw ability is yeah, minus zero. If the draw ability was minus zero and it just said draw a card, uh -huh. it would not be what it is. Agreed. Because in Vintage, the most important thing is the Brainstorm. I agree. And but not just drawing in, a card in every is format. different than drawing three cards. <laughs> Keep in mind that Jace has never been if in a format card, without If this card had the, had the activation so, Brainstorm, 
we'd be having a totally different discussion. We're saying draw a card. It's very important to point out that Jace has never existed in an environment without fetch lands. So the comment you just made about Vintage is not unique to Vintage. The Brainstorm has its power in Legacy, in Extended, in Type 2. Right. All the same places. Right. Yes, I agree. If Azure Mage had a Brainstorm effect, we'd be I was not dismissing the hypothetical Azure Mage with the 1U activation. I was simply saying, I said it would be good. I just didn't think it would be great. Well, now, it might reason, be great. I might be wrong about that. There's a reason but that's hardly that dismissal. They, there's a reason that manic activation is four, and I would tell you it's not has doesn't have anything to do with vintage. <laughs> well, let's the, just think vintage about vintage could stomach a much more powerful and much lower activation. You don't activation. think that the other formats could stomach a three activation? I mean, seriously. I mean, could they? Now we're getting into vagaries of language here. That's fine. Would, that a three activation Azure Mage would not destroy Type Two. It would not have to be banned. I don't think. Like like Jason. <laughs> wow. Was. But it would be very It would be very Five dominant. Five to draw a card. How can that be dominant? Um, it's not just because you're being reductionist. Fair. <laughs> you're being reductionist. It doesn't end there. That's is the yeah. point. But I mean, I just. I know. I know. I, all right. Accumulated <laughs> knowledges were legal and standard. <laughs> One How day. many years ago was that? Yeah. <laughs> Deep okay. analysis. Was... Thank you to all of us, or to all of you who gave us some some feedback on the past episode. It was a fun episode to record, and we're having fun with the feedback still. <laughs> Steve, anything else before our closing question this week? Well, I think that I think that that we've hit on a really ripe area of discussion, which oh, is yeah. how to design cards for vintage, particularly creatures for we vintage. Could, we could have a whole podcast on that topic. Not like we haven't had 50% yeah. on one already, but... <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity and space to do that in ways that wouldn't negatively impact other formats. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely there is. A very good discussion. It'd be really awesome if we could get some more dialogue with the folks on R&D on that one. <laughs> All right. You want to hit us with our closing question this week? So since our focus today was on cat stacks we're, and workshop design, we're curious what your top five auto-include cards are for a workshop deck, um, excluding mana sources. So what spells, what lock parts or creatures are auto-includes in order of what? Most include to... <laughs> yeah, go ahead and give us the order. Very very curious to see what people's number one and two are. So with that, thank you for listening to episode four of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us your response at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It's not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>